1: It's sponsored by Cabinets HR. Cabinets HR delivers HR to companies with 49 or fewer people across the United States with our platform that automates HR products and services while giving you access to a dedicated HR business partner for more complicated HR challenges. Small business loses an estimated $10,000 per employee per year because of unreliable HR. Small business owners are spending an average of 25% of the time on HR. Time that will be better spent taking care of the people, the customers, and building their business. Cavernous HR saves small business owners time and money on, on their HR. Sign up at www.CabinetsHR.com or email me at JasonCabinets at CabinetsHR.com to learn more. Cabinets HR, focus on your business where you've got your HR. Hello, welcome to Jason Cabinets Experience. I'm your host, Jason today Yesterday, is Sarah Bell. Sarah, you ready to be great today? Say again. Sarah, you're ready to be great today?
0: Yes, I am ready to be great today.
1: Sarah, what do you what do you do for fun?
0: Um, okay, I um my favorite things to do for fun, I like to hike and I like to travel. Um, yeah, traveling is probably my biggest passion. it's um, been restricted a bit since I had kids. Um, but just getting back on it post COVID as well.
1: So you have seen it's not a good idea to like, travel on your own and leave the kids by the house by themselves?
0: Well, do you know what? This weekend I am actually going uh, to Alaska to try and see the Northern Lights. Oh, wow. 40 years I have lived and I have not seen them once. So I'm nice. going away child-free to try and do that.
1: Nice. So what's some of your favourite places, places you've been to travelling so far?
0: Uh, oh, good question. Um, so I was lucky enough to go to the Galapagos Islands about 20 years ago um, before it got really expensive to go. Um, and that was just unreal. It was like being on another planet. Like insane wildlife. Like, you know, kind of a bit like Hawaii in terms of what it looks like. um, But just the the wildlife they had was just insane. Like iguanas everywhere. Like you couldn't always walk because there were iguanas on the path.
1: Insane. Isn't it crazy how there's all these nice places to go to, but then like, you know, tourism kind of ruins in your way, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, And I think having said that, I have noticed more and more that you tend to have places that are more off the beaten track that are coming up. And so places like Rome, Paris, you know, New York... I think over time people will stop going there quite so much because they're just oversaturated. Like I saw a really interesting um, picture of like Santorini in Greece. Mm-hmm. And it was like what you see on Instagram and then what reality is like. And of course Instagram yeah. looks amazing, no one there. Reality, you've got people up against each other walking down the street. Yeah.
1: When I was the army, me and my family were in a, a Vicenza Italy for like two and a half years. It's like 30 minutes, like west of Venice. Mm-hmm. And Venice is like, you know, the tourist, like a tourist place, right? But it's like the you know it's the tourist picture, and then it's like the reality, right? Yeah. Like summertime, it's like doo doo brown shit water, you know. People are like hot and bothered. People charging you like twenty bucks for an ice cream cone.
0: Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, I mean, I have not been to Venice in a really long time, but I can't even imagine going there now, especially not in the summer.
1: Yeah. But, so, what's yeah. been your favorite place to travel so far?
0: Um, so since we moved to America, uh, to America about eight years ago, um, one of my favorites is Hawaii. Like it's okay. it's no one really goes there from England because it's kind of a long way. Um, but I love, the, I love the snorkeling there. I love the volcanic uh, landscape. Like everything about Hawaii is, is great.
1: So you're, you're a big snorkeler?
0: Uh, I am. Yeah, I love, I love snorkeling. Um, and I managed to find a snorkel that is prescription. So okay. I can see underwater as well.
1: I guess you don't do much snorkeling off the coast of Washington, do you?
0: Um, uh, I have tried. It's freezing cold. <laughs> and I mean, you can see a few fish, but they're all grey. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like the thing about Hawaii is everything is in color. Yeah. How are you? Where do you like to go?
1: Uh, Italy's the favorite place that's where I'm from. But uh, actually, I just came from Vietnam a couple yeah. about a week ago. Yeah, I was there with a friend of mine and his wife, September first, September tenth. That's really nice. Yeah. Whereabouts
0: did you go?
1: Uh, Ho Chi Minh City. That's where we stayed at. We did a place called Vang Tao Beach for one day. Okay. That's really nice. Yeah, the water is warm and stuff. Yeah. It was crazy. It's like right by the port, like one of the ports of Vietnam, you see all these cargo ships in the bay, right? It was insane how many cargo ships it was, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's true. I bet it was crazy with motorbikes. I've only oh. been to Hanoi, but the motorbikes just crowding the speech was crazy. Yeah,
1: I, I call it the walk of death. Yeah. Like for people who don't have never been to Vietnam, basically like, like you have a four-lane intersection, like all these cars, all these scooters, you know, and all these people, everyone just goes at the same time. Yeah. So you're just like, you know, dodging cars and stuff, you know
0: you literally take your life in your hands any time you it's cross.
1: it's a leap, leap of faith. Yeah. But it works because everyone like kind of walks slow. Other cars go slow. <laughs> now, it's I, I messed up a couple of times but i was still the walk of death here, right? But I hope I like, cut myself.
0: Do you know what? I'm always worried I'm going to get in trouble over here because in England, you can just cross the street mm-hmm. and, you know, at any point mm-hmm. and people will stop for you. Yeah. Um, whereas I'm pretty sure it's an offense in the US yeah, and cars do not yeah. stop. Yeah, yeah <laughs> walking. Yeah, unfortunately,
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy. So what's a place you've been to where, like, you really enjoyed it where people were, were like, you you had fun there?
0: Oh, uh, okay. Tri Cities, Washington.
1: Seriously? Okay. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I um before I went, a lot of people said like, why why would you go there? And um I was like, why wouldn't I go there? Mm. And um, I it mean, was it was pretty chill. Um, we, I uh, we just did a lot of kind of like going for walks, eating. Mm. It was great. I loved it there. But uh, yeah, a lot of people wondered why.
1: Okay, yeah, hmm. I was not expecting that. I no. was expecting, to you say something, I don't know, like, you know, some random country in South America or something like that.
0: No, I mean, I think my only, my probably one regret of a country I went to was, um, I, we, I went into, and um, the city is Quito, and I'm going to forget the country. Um, but either way, I we got there, and I'd kind of been, like, hyper-aware of keeping my stuff about me. And then I took off, um, like, a bag, and I put it under my legs. And then my husband and I were in the car and then um, the next thing I knew, somebody had put um, some sort, something against the window. The window smashed and they grabbed the bag, which had both our passports in, oh, like all sorts of stuff. And uh, we spent the next two days trying to get passports. No, it was sorry. It was in Peru, in Lima. And bad. it was just insane. And uh, yeah, that was a pretty horrendous experience. My husband bolted out the car, ran after the person, and I just mm. had visions of him. I don't know something happening getting to kidnapped him or something. Getting or... kidnapped, yeah, short, yeah. So that was that's probably the the scariest experience I think I've had whilst traveling.
1: Okay, yeah. Any in any, any place you gonna want to go next?
0: Uh, I really want to go to Japan.
1: Japan, okay, yeah,
0: that's high on my priority list. But um, I think it's it's got really expensive and busy, yeah. and so I think I'm almost priced out of mm-hmm. Japan. Um, I was lucky enough kind of twenty years to travel a lot when the pound was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, like at one point it was $2 to the pound. Yeah. Um, and so I was able to travel a lot when I was younger.
1: So um, yeah, we'll see yeah. how that goes going forward. And so you're going to Alaska this weekend for the Northern Lights. Yes. How long are you going to be up there?
0: Just three days. Three days. Yeah. But I think it's going to be cloudy the whole time. So my mission, I think, is going to be unsuccessful.
1: So man, so we just got to go farther north on something. Are you going to be like Fairbanks, Fairbanks or Fairbanks? okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I've just discovered the Equinox, which I think is, well, I hope is this weekend. Mm. Um, some. I hopeful. I think the the lights were out last night yeah. um but I was in a meeting so I missed them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Man. Um, yeah. Um
0: how about you where's your, where's next on your list?
1: I don't know, to be honest with you. Like mm. like I would never went to Vietnam that's that's, that's nowhere where my top 10 list of countries to go but like yeah. you no know, had an opportunity to go you no know, tour guide and stuff so I had to you know go there you know but yeah. I don't know. I'm I'm going to Mexico in January to visit a friend of mine. I haven't mm. been there before.
0: I no I haven't either. Um, yeah. oh, well, not where Whereabouts he going?
1: Uh, that that uh, they live by that um tourist town, of Varta. I can never say okay. the name. Yeah, they live like right twenty miles to the left of it or something. His, his wife's actually from there, so mm. oh nice, It'll be a good time. Yeah, I mean, in army, I was all over Europe and you know, stuff. You know, mm. um, I've never been to South America, Central America, or Africa. So
0: was that where you were positioned in the army, all over Europe?
1: Yeah, all over oh, Europe. Okay. Yeah, so I was in Germany twice, Italy, South Korea. Um, auto Texas. This is a different name now. In South Carolina, Kansas in here.
0: Got it. Yeah. And I bet you saw quite different sides of those countries whilst you were there.
1: Yeah. 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 Try to see a lot of different things. So you're actually from England, correct? Correct. And you've been here for like eight years?
0: Yeah. Yeah. We moved over eight years ago. Um I uh my husband works at Microsoft. Mm -hmm. Uh and so we had the opportunity to come over. And I think about a year earlier we'd been on holiday in America. Mm And talked about, you know, wouldn't it be fun to move here for a couple of years? Mm. Um, and then the opportunity came up and so we just did. Didn't really think about it yeah. that much. Um, we just moved. Um, it, was quite, it was, I think in hindsight, it was um, quite a bigger shift than I was expecting. Mm. I definitely didn't put enough time into thinking about what the <laughs> movement. But yeah, it's been, I mean, we said we would come for two years and
1: now and what, we've been here eight. Were your kids born here or, or England.
0: One kid in England, okay. one over here.
1: So one American, one British kid. <laughs> Yes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Although my daughter, who is American, oh, thinks that she has got the most amazing British accent.
1: Does. It goes a bit like this, like,
0: I'm British. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, it's hilarious.
1: <laughs> so talk about some of like, yeah. the culture shocks of coming to America from England. Like things you weren't expecting or
0: yeah, okay. Um, so there has I'll tell you, I had thought that the culture would be more similar than it is. Um, there is a lot of difference. Um in England, there's a lot of um what we would call banter, so kind of just back and forwards, like constantly teasing each other. And I haven't noticed that quite so much in America. like i've I've started to find more people mm-hmm. with that, but it's kind of endemic in mm-hmm. England, like people go to the pub. of the actually, the biggest culture shock, I think, is how few places you can take your children. In America. Yeah. Um, like when we first moved over, we went to like a wine festival in Kirkland and I got there and then I discovered that you could only drink wine in the non children in the over 21 area. <laughs> Whereas in England, everyone takes their children like to the pub, they'll spend their day in the pub, the children will be playing. Um, that was quite the shock. Um, I think also one thing I've noticed increasingly over time in the US is um in England you can you can switch not everybody but like I have voted for all three political parties in the UK. Um all three of them over the time that I have been able to vote. Whereas in the US, people tend to have they either vote Republican or Democrat and they don't tend to switch. Um and that that I find quite intriguing and strange.
1: Yeah, I know each election actually only the past only have to go like only go after like ten percent of the because like others yeah. forty or whatever is like are uh, not gonna change. Yeah. So Britain has like three p- parties in.
0: Yeah. I mean there there are two main parties yeah, and the, then the, there's the Liberal Democrats um and they're probably most similar to the Democrats over here and they have a small a small percentage maybe I don't know even
1: 10%. So as I'm working out here in, in the US like you know, either Republican or Democrats win. so either some of you have a majority. I'm guessing with three parties to vote for a lot of times they don't have 50%. So how does it work? So a party room like less than 50% and they got to like, how does that work?
0: Yeah, so when that's happened previously, um, there was a coalition between the Conservative Party and the Liberal Democrats um, under David Cameron in about the t- kind of 2010 timeframe. Um, and that, I mean, that coalition was very strange mm-hmm. um, just because they want opposite ends of the spectrum. But I would say this is that I think... The difference between the Conservative and Labour and Lib Dem parties in the UK is very is a lot less. Like there's a lot less difference between them. So things, you know, there's a lot that isn't on the ticket in the UK. Like abortion's not on the ticket. There's no gun control. That's never on the ticket. Um, things like universal healthcare. Like if you took that away from people in England, there would be a riot. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: so those kind of things, like they just aren't even in. In, even in politics. And I think one of the challenges now is how do you differentiate between the two parties because they, there are a lot of similarities. Um, obviously, you would never get that between um, the Democrats and the Republicans here.
1: Yeah. Mm. So are y'all like, you have like do do citizenships now or how does that work?
0: Yeah. So um, we, I'm, I'm going to agree. We're on green cards mm-hmm. um, and then we've just applied for citizenship. Yeah. So yeah,
1: we'll so you, see. So, you, so you, you, you get to keep both of them then? Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, and my husband's also Australian, so he's got, he'll have triple citizenship.
1: Okay. Yeah. So when you tell your family and friends you move to the States, they're like, what are you doing? Don't go over there. Like, you know.
0: I think they were worried that we were going to move to Australia uh-huh. and then we moved to America instead. So
1: that's a little closer.
0: <laughs> it is a little closer. Um, Australia is fabulous. It's such yeah. a great country. Mm-hmm. It is a long way away from yeah. everywhere. Um, and it takes, when we go there, um, my husband's from Adelaide um, and it takes us about 27 hours
1: together nice yeah um so what's something you miss about england and or or australia
0: Ooh. um i mean for me it's friends and family that's Mm. these are the main things i miss from england and just being able to pop to someone's house Mm. like you know birthdays that you miss um or just going to the pub like all of those kind of everyday things is what i miss the most um i do also miss the history that you get in the uk um, like just being able to go to really old buildings, right. um, that kind of thing. Um, in Australia, um, the oh, I mean, there's a lot to love about Australia. Um, Adelaide in particular is such a bustling city. Like I was there for work and to visit family a couple of, yeah, the last summer. And like just everywhere is bustling, wow. busy, open. Like there was just businesses everywhere, like cafes, bars everywhere. And I think with downtown Seattle... Like it still really hasn't come back. No. And no. in Australia, it, it's almost, I mean, they had a very different pandemic experience. Mm. Um, but I was completely blown away at what a great city Adelaide
1: is. Yeah, Vietnam's the same way as like a lot of bus, hustle and bus are right. Yeah. Same thing. Mm. Uh, um, so you just, you spent some time at something called KPMG? Yeah, I did.
0: Yeah, it's, a, it's one of the big accountancy firms. Mm. Um, I mean, when I was growing up, I didn't, I had no idea what startups were, what any, I I knew all of the kind of standard career paths, like teacher, doctor, accountant, (laughs) lawyer. Uh, My mum was a lawyer, so I obviously wasn't going to become a lawyer. Um, I also wanted to travel. And so my parents at the time said to me, the only way you're going traveling is if you have a job to come back to. And so I, the only types of jobs you could get for that were accounting. So I joined KPMG and I trained as an accountant for three years. Um, I was, I was not good at it. But it's, I mean, it's a great training experience. Like there's nothing quite like being 21 years old, knowing nothing about accountancy and then being put in front of a director of finance who makes you feel that small. It was, in many ways, it was the worst experiences of my life, having to do that every single day and not being and not being able to do it well. Um, but it was also a great exercise in resilience. That's all I can say about it. <laughs> and then as soon as I qualified, I never did accountancy ever no. again. No
1: nice yeah. um so then you do some healthcare stuff like policy and strategy and healthcare
0: yeah I um so I worked for the care quality Commission um for I think about six years um, and it's the uh, government regulator for health and social care in the UK um, and they kind of basically check that hospitals care homes dentists doctors are kind of meeting quality standards and and within the law um, and that was that was an interesting experience. Again, I didn't have much experience when I started. Mm. Um, and a lot of it was around kind of meeting people who actually use those services, like managing stakeholders. Um, but we were at the whims of government. Like I remember working for a year on on one thing, like one big kind of regulation framework. And then the government changed and they cancelled it instantly. So it was a year's worth of work from like hundreds of people just gone in a second. Um, so, but it was a great
1: experience. So a born here... Does yes. you consider yourself an American, a British person, or, or Australian?
0: Uh, so I've got my, sorry, was that by, by my daughter? I've got an English daughter and an American daughter.
1: Okay. And so how do you, with the, y'all being in America, how do you make sure they like, you, you like, you teach them the culture of the other places you, you've been to, or is that a losing battle? We do,
0: um, I mean, it is in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do visit fairly regularly. I probably get back to the UK with them maybe once a year, mm-hmm. um, which is really nice. And we spend a few weeks there. Um, one of the benefits, I think, of working remotely for a company is that you can work from anywhere in the anywhere, world, yeah, yeah. so, um, yeah. I've been pretty lucky with that. Um, I mean, in terms of the culture, um I mean, I mean, they're very much American. Yeah. um but there are, you know, there's a lot of similarities uh, between England and the u s. at that stage. I think in many ways, if children in the u s. are a bit more naive and innocent than they yeah. are in England, um which I really like. <laughs> so I'd say that. Um, and then yeah, sometimes we'll kind of fall down a trap of trying to work out who Henry VIII's wives were in order <laughs> and that kind of stuff. So that's pretty fun. Yeah.
1: So so ran question like, yeah, the first time I'm, I'm going to assume, assume you've been at Outback Steakhouse.
0: I have.
1: Well, when you went the first time, you're like, well, what is this crap? Like this, this is nowhere close to <laughs> <laughs>
0: do you know what um, it's my dad's favourite US restaurant is it um, yeah but we've I think we've been there once or twice okay. I, my favourite used to be Red Lobster Okay. because we went to America once or twice when I was growing up and I just love their cheese scones and of course now like no one goes well no one I know goes to Red Lobster um, same with Outback Steakhouse um, but we've, we've got some like that in the UK as well um, like TGI Fridays is basically Outback Steakhouse in England yeah, um, yeah it's, it's not great but sometimes you just gotta have it <laughs> <laughs> how about you? Have you got a guilty pleasure a uh, restaurant that you like going to?
1: This ain't like pasta Italian food usually. Oh yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. We have a I think spaghetti factory in England and it's I mean it's grim, but it's always busy. I'm like who is eating there?
1: Yeah, it's like here in the States that there's a restaurant called Arby's, like no yeah. one ever sees it. Like and like and crazy Arby just bought another restaurant for eight billion dollars. Like, how do they get eight how? billion dollars? Like no one sees anyone go to Arby's like
0: yeah, I know. I feel that way. We did have a challenge to, to try and go to all the fast food restaurant chains that we could in the US. Um, we've, I think we've made it through about half of them. And yeah, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of bad
1: ones in there. <clears throat> That's crazy. And then, um, have you ever been to Panda Express?
0: Yes, once.
1: So I learned this yesterday by, by mistake. You would never guess how much profit they made last year.
0: Oh, God. Um, I mean, it's going to be billions. 10 billion. No. In
1: profit here. Yeah.
0: But they, those Panda Expresses are never busy.
1: I don't know. Maybe somebody's lying on their paper account. Maybe you the their account those account doesn't know what they're doing and in front of the number or something, right? Oh, I don't, I don't know. know.
0: Well, yeah, you said it, not me. <laughs> but I mean well, someone must be, someone must be eating in there. Yeah.
1: Very very odd. So change subjects, what, what yes. is what is it like in, what is the Australian startup scene like? What's you know people talk about Silicon Valley? Israel, what is it like in Australia?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, compared to Silicon Valley in Israel, um, I'd say the Australian startup ecosystem is maturing. Um, There is a lot of money going into it. Um, You know, there is quite a lot of investment, um, particularly in Sydney, Melbourne, um, and also Adelaide. Um, But again, Australia, it is a long way from anywhere. Um, Although one of the things that we were reflecting on at Leap Sheep is that we couldn't have built Leap Sheep in Silicon Valley or Tel Aviv or London but we could build it from Adelaide because it was very much an immature startup ecosystem. And in some ways it's still, it's still very much um, kind of maturing, um, but it's, it's a long way behind.
1: Now, is Australia considered part like the South Asian, Southeast Asian startups, thing? like they consider like Vietnam, like Korea, in that part of the country, or that's t- totally separate?
0: Um, separate. Okay. Um, yeah, they're no, quite separate. There are, I mean, there are some connections, but not mm. many. Like okay. Australia is quite out there. And if there's any connections with Australia, it's usually into places like Silicon Valley or established ecosystems. Um, I know there's a few schemes in Australia like landing pads. Mm. um, And those are specifically designed to get Australian startups exposure to Silicon Valley and other startup ecosystems just to try and build capability. Um, And I think it's one of the biggest challenges because you know there's a couple of Big unicorns in Australia, like Canva, Atlassian. Yeah,
1: Canva um, is the one everyone knows. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. But there's, but there are, they are. I mean, there's only a couple, and mm-hmm. so you've then got the question of, and I think this is true of all developing startup ecosystems. Like, how do you build true startup expertise when you don't have the the, the ecosystem, the ecosystem, thing. and kind of all the connections and the decades that Silicon Valley in particular has built, um, and it's it's a challenge. Um, yeah it's a big challenge. And of course, you know, in many of these new developing startup ecosystems, it's like the Wild West. Mm-hmm. You've got a ton of well-meaning people who are trying to offer advice. Yeah. Often they're then industry got some experts.
1: Scammers too, unfortunately, you know, like
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is like the Wild West to some degree. And, you know, a couple of times I've been researching investors, and then you Google their name and, you know, there's like some charges or felonies against yeah. them and you just think, ah. Oh, I would never have known that if I hadn't googled. And yeah. they're still on platforms, and they're still mm-hmm. on LinkedIn, and they're posting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's tricky. And I think if you were like a, if you were in the accountancy field or the medical profession, you'd be struck off. Oh yeah. But there's yeah. nothing like that because yeah, so no, there's no yeah.
1: no certification. You just say I'm I'm an investor and I've got the money right.
0: Yeah. Or you say I'm a startup advisor and like if you're a startup, how can you tell if that person has the right experience? Yeah. Like how can you tell? It's um, it's a big challenge.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, is yeah. There's a lot of scammers out there, a lot of charlatans, uh, so to speak. You know, charge like crazy amounts of money. Like, yeah.
0: I almost think though, the it's not so much the scammers mm. that are the problem. It's the people who are really well meaning mm. and they really want to genuinely and they help give wrong
1: advice. founders.
0: Yeah, but they or they give advice that's worked for them, mm. and of course, and. You know, you, like well, say, from like them
1: in your twenty twelve or something, or yeah,
0: yeah, or in a different industry, or with a different problem, or a different market segment. And it's like, how how is a founder supposed to know whether that's going to work for them or not? It's, uh, yeah, um, some of the founders
1: like take bad advice and wait, I won't say waste. I won't right. say waste six months. I guess they learn something, but still, it's like six months. You know, like
0: it's ex- it's expensive learning. Um, one of the things that we find, um. And I guess it's a belief that we have at LeapSheep is that actually founders are spending a lot of money on support and help. But typically they're spending it on like software developers, salespeople, marketing agencies, but they're spending it too early. And so, of course, you know, they either build the wrong thing because they're kind of working with a software developer before they've done any, um, any user research with, with potential customers. And it's like, how can you divert some of that spend so that founders kind of make the best decisions that they can at the time? um it's one of the challenges we find um so often i meet founders at events particularly i mean obviously i'm in seattle so i meet founders at events and often they've you know they've they're working with two or more software developers and you go oh that's great like you know what how many customers have you spoken with like who's your ideal customer and they struggle to answer it and you think how do your software developers know what to build Mm -hmm. like you know do you have personas like how do your software developers know who they're building for like it's all of those kind of things. Um, and it, it's it's such, and I, I get so frustrated by it because all the founders that I come across, like usually they're really passionate. They've got a really clear idea for the problem they want to solve. Um, and it's the same story, like event after event.
1: Yeah. Or well, the founder has, like, hasn't done the persona research or, or case and had no idea what to tell the, the developer to do. Yeah. So the founder pays like $20,000 or more, and the developer makes something like completely different. Yeah. And so the founder gets frustrated. You didn't get what I want. This is exactly what you want. Cause like, you know, founder don't have, founders don't founders don't how to communicate developers. So they definitely have a different language. They talk, you know, yeah. It's very, very detailed user stories and stuff. You know, most people, like, like I, I said before on the podcast, like if you tell a regular person, get up and open the door, get, up and open the door. Developer, get up a 20 degree angle, do 19 degrees thrust, put one forward, you know, just so detailed, right? And most people don't communicate like that.
0: Yeah, no, it's true. It's true, but and I think do. one of the challenges as well is that software developers, like they, they're really just focused on developing software, mm. um, and so if you talk to them about who the customer is and try and get them to think through the customer's perspective yeah, or no, even no, talk to customers, yeah. like usually they can't, Most they can't or won't do it. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been chatting with a founder who's in our portfolio, and you know, they they still don't have a clear persona, and yeah. you've got the software developer who's doing a ton of work and i said well why are you doing this work and if so you don't this, know what's that like
1: tech debt right
0: yeah yes yeah it's 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 a hard one and i think also the the ecosystem exacerbates it like if you go to any event and you and you meet um an investor it's always the vcs that are at the events and usually it's the early stage startups mm-hmm. who are going to the events
1: where's your tech and, co-founder at or what's your in yeah, debt?
0: yeah or you know you like oh have you got your product yet like you know what you know we love we love it when founders have got two hundred percent like month on month growth. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, that's I mean, it's great advice if you're talking to like Series B mm-hmm. founders, but for early stage, yeah. it just exacerbates this build myth. a
1: product. Doesn't matter it. if what the customer wants, just build a product.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And so back to angel investors fast. It's my experience. It's like the, the angel investors who like put on LinkedIn angel investors is like they've never invested ever in their life, right? And the actual angel investors like it's they don't. Advertiser, right? It's kind of hard to find them. I thought it was interesting.
0: It is hard to find them. And the ones, we've actually been doing quite a lot of research into angel investors at the moment. Um, And one of the things you find is that often people who are listed as angel investors, um, often they are associated with a VC. So actually, maybe maybe they have been an angel, but now they're with a VC. Um, Or often they're with like an alliance or a group. Um, I'd say it's extremely hard. And I know that there's platforms like Gust and other matching platforms. Um, but it feels like there's a lot of hoops to jump through if you're pre seed as a founder, um, particularly pre seed to actually find the right investor. And you know, there's you're gonna be sending hundreds and hundreds of messages. Um yeah, it's it's a challenge.
1: Like there's so many investors, I don't know, all these micro VCs, angel investors. Mm-hmm. It's like there's like like you so said, Gus PitchBook, um, NFX. Mm-hmm. All these like things out there right it is it's it's overwhelming right but then you gotta take the time like it is like you know if you're a a founder you gotta research and like who you're gonna target right
0: yeah yeah and i mean many founders are lucky enough to have friends and family Mm -hmm. for their pre-seed um or you know if you've had a especially in this area if you've had a big payoff from like Mm -hmm. microsoft or amazon or whatever then you might have enough to get you started um so I think yeah but but I think on the whole if you don't have those kind of connections or family wealth or well connect like mm. friends and family that are willing to take a risk finding angel investment is a big challenge. Um it's something I you know I feel increasingly passionate about. Um one of the ways that we we help founders is um if they are struggling to raise capital then we kind of help them with ways to bootstrap. Mm. So you know can you do some consulting work or sell some projects mm. to get to extend your runway? So that you don't need to raise capital.
1: That's Collect, one collect, thing collect some cans, donate some blood,
0: <laughs> well, do Uber, do you know what? I I have McDonald's. Not, <laughs> I have not been <laughs> suggesting that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a few founders that we've worked with actually have done that extremely successfully and mm-hmm. they've built big, um, they've built a massive runway of delivering projects, mm-hmm. um, usually to the customers that they then plan to service with a product. Um, and that, that's probably the most, success, the most success that we've had in extending a founder's runway. And the other advantage is, is that you don't give up equity, yeah. Um, and so then you know potentially you might earn enough through that side of the business that you can then build your product alongside. Um, and it's also yeah, I mean it's there's there's a lot to it obviously, um, and it can be distracting. Um, I mean it's the model that we've done at Leap Sheep mm-hmm. is you know whilst we have been building our product in the background, we have delivered it um, manually um, for subscription revenue. So we've been able to bootstrap to date. Um, it's been quite painful. Um, but it's been worth it,
1: I think. So you might not know this, but mm-hmm. the name Leap Sheep, does that mean anything or was just a random name that was picked?
0: Definitely not a random name. Um, it's, I often get asked this question. Uh, so it's based on the premise that, you know, there's a lot of sheep in a pack. Like, how do you leap over? Okay. Um, and that's really the premise. Um, interestingly, though, um, we've kind of moved into a different analogy, which is, you know, if, you, in the, if you're an investor, you have to pick a winner, um, like You know, you have to look and try and work out which founder, which idea, which team is going to be the one that kind of becomes the unicorn. Um, whereas actually our philosophy is that you don't have to pick winners, Like you can grow and build and develop and support many, many, many founders um, and therefore creating more winners. And so the leap sheep one, I kind of, the way I'm thinking about it now is like, well, okay, there's a lot of sheep. Why can't all of them leap? Okay. That's the first time I said that out loud. I'm not sure I'll say it again.
1: <laughs> so I think on your, on your website it says we will reduce the billions of dollars of capital that wasted every year by startups. Like, how do y'all get this number of billions of dollars? Like, where did that number come from? Yeah, sure.
0: Like, so there's um, so there's some research um, that's been done on the number of new um, startups uh, a year, um, and it's around five million startups. Um, and of that, and again, we've um, as with any founder, when you are Find, like kind of doing your market research you're going to be able to find a ton of data and you're also going to have to make some assumptions. Um, so of that five million about a million of those tend to be in um uh, we well our hypothesis is about a million of those five million are spending around a hundred thousand dollars in their first year of being a startup and they're spending it on software developers, marketing agencies, legal fees, accounting fees um, and whoever that is on their first team and so and much of that spend, is being misallocated. Like, you know, it's being spent too early, like we've talked about, um, or just on the wrong thing.
1: Yeah, I know when I started out, I, I spent so much money on stuff. I was trying to have like, you know, like one time I bought a sales platform. I was nowhere yeah. near doing sales, but I was like, oh, right now I get 80% off. Six yeah. months later, I never use it one time. Yeah. So like, that's waste of money. Yeah. And so many people do that. Yeah. And then I think you got so many people out there, like developers, market people. They, they think they yeah. know what they're doing, but they really don't, right? So like you're paying money for a service, a product, they don't deliver, right? Yeah. But they think they know what they're doing and like they're not delivering. Like, like hire a market person, I need a marketing plan. And they give you something like crap, like I could have done this. Like
0: Yeah. And also I think the challenge is, that most marketing agencies in particular, like yes, there are some very good ones, but many of them are doing it for established business. Mm-hmm. And established business tends to know who their customer is. Yeah. They've been repeatedly selling to that customer. Mm-hmm. You know, they know what language resonates with them. They know what their product is, yeah. what the benefits are. Whereas if you're an early stage founder, a lot of that, you still are learning and it's changing over time. And sometimes you don't know. Like, so I'm always surprised sometimes when I ask founders and say, you know, what is, and I, I like to call it a pants on fire problem. Like mm. what is the pants on yeah. fire problem that you're solving? And much of the time founders can't answer that yeah. because often you start with an idea mm. or a solution idea and then you try and then think, well, okay, well, I'm, I think this is a great idea. Therefore, other people will think it's a great idea. And often it takes a ton of time to find that niche segment mm-hmm. that has really got that problem and is willing to pay for it.
1: Yeah, I have a good friend, Alan Gonzalez. He's a startup founder. He, he's a, he, he does a, a company called DevMatch. He, he explains like, you know, if you're a startup founder, you need know, to provide a painkiller, not a vitamin. Absolutely. And to me, startup founders are providing vitamins. Yeah, another painkiller.
0: Yeah, and and sometimes when you ask what the painkiller, uh, the pain, what the pain is, people will explain it as a gain, mm-hmm. and and it takes a bit of time I think for the penny to drop that mm-hmm. actually people aren't paying for a gain. Yeah, um, you know something like Facebook or Instagram or wherever, like that's I guess a gain, mm-hmm. <laughs> depending on how you look at it. But I'm accessing that for free. Yeah. Would I pay for it? Probably not. Whereas you know you do you do pay. When a pain becomes so great and so big, you will pay to solve it. It's as simple as that.
1: What's the difference in, of a startup? I mean, what is a startup?
0: Yeah, so my favorite definition is that is Steve Blanks, which is it's a temporary organization that's searching for a repeatable business model. Um, and to me, that summarizes a startup. Um, the other element of being a startup is, you know, what um, it's it, t- typically a product-based company. So something that when the, if it scales and gets to that exponential growth then you have that massive, um, gap between kind of what it costs to run the business, um, and then actually the returns that you get. So I think that's the other core element of a startup and you know, it's disruptive. Like startups should be disruptive other otherwise they're entrepreneurs.
1: So when does a startup go from being a startup to like to lack of a better term, a real business?
0: That is a very good question. So... Um, and I would suggest, and again, this is a tough one, because if you think about kind of previous startups that I would call are now very much established businesses, you know, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, all of them were startups once, but now they're very much established. Um, I am not going to give you a technical definition here. Um, so, but I would say like, once you are operating, once you have found product market fit and you have scaled um, to a certain extent, and then you're then you go into operation mode, right? Like when you're not, you know, you the innovation and the disruptive side is to a certain extent kind of on the back burner, and you're operating that business model. That's when I think you'd call it an established business.
1: So next one, when of course you start start off, you got to do product market fit, MVP, or like beta testing. When should a founder switch from like startup mode, MVP, etc., to like full out scale scaling?
0: Yeah. Uh, so there's two parts to that question. So product market fit is a it's a long journey to get to it. You know you need to have um a uh, a customer segment or like a we we call it a beachhead. Um, I think Bill Olette kind of coined the term beachhead. But you know you need a, a niche beachhead market that has the problem that they are willing to pay to solve that problem, and you have a solution that completely solves that problem and meets their needs. And then, of course, you need to kind of go into the stage where you're learning and learning and learning. So, you know, does your product technically work? Do your customers get the benefits that you said they do? Are they um, engaging with it and is it sticky? Are you able to acquire customers repeatedly and at scale? Um, That's kind of all the side on the innovation side. But then there's also the really important aspect, which is the business model side. So before you scale, you need to make sure that you have got a... A business model that's worth scaling so you know is your customer acquisition costs less than like significantly less than your lifetime value um you know what's your gross margin like all of these kind of metrics um and making sure that you've got the metrics right so that if you scale then you scale a decent business model i mean there are examples of where bad business models have scaled like twitter is a great example um you know twitter's i, I don't know what their current profit margin is but you know they've struggled to make a profit despite having a ton of money poured in. Same with YouTube, like YouTube actually scaled and then found a business model that was worthy of scale. So you know there there are instances where you can scale before you reach product market fit and before you get the metrics. Um, but typically it's better to make sure that you've reached product market fit and got good metrics first, otherwise you're just burning money.
1: Okay. So this is like an exaggeration. It's like some people in the startup world they'll tell founders you know. Fast, right? You know, if you don't have like, you know, product market fit, blase blase, million dollar revenue by three months, just shut it down. Other people like, you know, never quit. I don't care if it takes 10,000 years, keep on going, right? What, I mean, It has to be a balance, right? Can't, yeah. can't, you know, like what, what's your take on that?
0: Yeah. I mean, my thought, it's a fabulous question. My thought on it is, is that sometimes because VCs are investing um, earlier and earlier in startups, like it's actually, it's counterintuitive, but they're, you know, if you think about what VCs need, they need to be able to deliver returns to their LPs. And so, of course, they want startups in their portfolio to be able to scale, to show growth, to get more revenue, all of these things. And so actually what it means is, um, do you know what, now I've started on that route, i am completely forgotten the question. <laughs> 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 Can you go back to it? I've just gone on yeah, a tangent. Yeah.
1: So, so yeah. So like some people in the Star Wars will say, you know, like fail fast, like oh yeah, yeah. If you don't yeah. have like, you know, a yes. million dollars of revenue within nine days, shut it down and the other other end, like, you know, never quit. I don't care, I don't care for like twenty thousand years, keep on going.
0: So there's definitely a balance in the middle. Um, and I think the fail fast methodology, I think is quite dangerous. Um, and I think people wear it as a bit of a badge of honor. I'd say, you know, it typically takes seven to 10 years for any founder that actually makes it to an exit event to get there. There is so, it takes a lot longer than any founder thinks when they start the journey of building a startup. Um, I, you know, and there are also, there's an also the other option, which is, is that you may not ever get to an exit event, but you actually might get a profitable, you know, company that's kind of worth continuing, but never gets that hyper growth. But it does, the the challenge is that it takes time to learn, like learn who your customer is, learn what marketing works, what doesn't, and run all these different experiments that kind of build, measure, learn um, cycle that's very much part of the lean startup and actually having the patience and the perseverance and the grit to, to continue down that path until you get to product market fit.
1: So if you listen to the news, you know, all the like publicity, you know, everyone's raising millions of dollars fundraising stuff. There's, you know, all this VC money out there. But reality, less than one percent raise money, right? It's true. Why is there such a myth out there, right? And, and saying like someone you founders was probably waste time, you know, trying to raise money when they're not fundable, right?
0: Yeah, I think um, one thing I've noticed is you know you if you go to a and a startup event, sometimes you'll get someone who's made it, like you know a successful founder who's raised, you know, they've potentially created a unicorn. And they'll kind of talk through the story of kind of how they got there and all the challenges and the times that they almost shut the business down, but they kept going. And of course, they reached this success. And it 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 obviously you need hope as a founder, mm-hmm. like you need hope that you're gonna get to that. <laughs> you know, that's what we're we're all on this journey, right? But it also exacerbates and makes it harder, I think, for founders to fail unless they really have kind of given everything and stopped.
1: Yeah, can you see the Oracle on Crunchbase geek all the time? No. Random founder raised $10 million or whatever, but like maybe two paragraphs blur. But In reality, there's probably a book could be written about all the failures, all yeah. the people that, all the, they probably had like a team of six people now. They probably went through 25 people, you know. That's people don't have to talk about either, like all the people you go through, right? Because like, it takes a lot of fundraise. Most people can't work for you for free, right? No. Nice. So usually I think after six months, the years, they get that real out. So then you lose all the expertise they had. You got to stall all over again. And then VC like, Man, you've had like such high turnover. Why? Because yeah. you don't give enough money to pay them.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it's a tough challenge, and that's one of the reasons why we where we where it's appropriate and where we can mm. we help founders with a like a different revenue stream mm. so that they can fund themselves in order to build build the business. I mean, it's not right for everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's hard. It's hard, and I think it's only getting harder. Like after Silicon Valley Bank, um, I think one of the repercussions of that is that there's a lot of new solutions being built to do more screening, like more hoops for founders to jump through to, to help um, investors pick winners. And you just think that's going to make it, it's going to make it even harder for good founders to raise. And there's the other element, which is like if we could just make more great founders with the right knowledge and and information to actually really help them and to reduce their risks and manage their resources, like that's surely the, the better option.
1: I know another thing like a lot of VCs like you might go to them and like do do a like pitch and you'll say I only I need three hundred thousand like I can't do enough for you I I I'd invest three million dollars right I mean I think so many founders need like 100000 dollars right mm-hmm. go to the next step
0: yeah it's true um, do you know what the working out the amount that you need to raise is a bit of is challenging because typically I, I
1: struggle with that all the time yeah
0: well I mean the principle we tend to work from is you want to really give yourself eighteen months of runway. Yeah. So that you're not constantly fundraising. Eighteen
1: with everything you want, like all the people you want, all the all the like all the toy, you know, the bells and whistles, you know. Because mm-hmm. it difference turned like you know buying the premium hotspot and like like doing like you know cold email yourself, right?
0: Yeah, it's true. And really, you want to raise the smallest possible amount, mm-hmm. um, so that you don't dilute yourself too much until yeah. you've kind of reached the next milestone and reached the next level of of traction. Um, it's it's a it's an extremely hard challenge.
1: And I guess you can't say we pitch to someone. They say how much are you raising. You can't say whatever you give me.
0: <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I'll read whatever you give me. <laughs> no, and I think the other counterintuitive thing about fundraising is that you really don't want to say that you're fundraising. Yeah, yeah. It's all about building relationships mm-hmm. with investors, like you know, just you know, for the future mm-hmm. and making and and kind of really understanding which investors will be appropriate to go back yeah. to. Um, I mean, a few of our the companies that we have worked with, they have been smart enough to do all of that relationship mm. building. And so they're in a position where they've got investors that want to invest in them. Mm. And they're saying, nah, we're okay for now. Thanks. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's an ideal situation to be in, but it's highly unlikely that most founders are in that position.
1: Yeah. And that's some about fundraising. They don't tell you, right? You know, like investors might tell you no. And you think, oh, it's because they don't like me, or it's not my product. But it's in reality because they have no more dry powder. I think that's the term, right? Dry powder. Mm, dry
0: powder, yeah. Yeah. Mm.
1: And then I, and this is what I was thought was bad advice. So when I first started, I was, I was told like, you know, if you pitch an investor, tell you no. Don't ask an investor for introductions because no one's going to invest. Yeah. But my thing was like, if, if investor said no because they had no dry powder, like why are we not making the introduction?
0: Yeah. The other thing is, the other element that's really critical is if do you fit into their investment thesis. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't fit into their investment thesis, then it's always going to be no.
1: Yeah, to me, mm-hmm. to me, that's on the founder, right? Because you have to do some research. Yeah. I mean, pretty much every VC, not maybe not angel investor, VCs, they have somewhere. I invest B to B at a round, or I invest this amount of money. I do yeah. this, or I only invest in like you know people of color. There's always it's out there. You might have to do a little bit of research, you know, yeah. but it's, yeah, it's, it's out there.
0: Yeah, the information is out there. Um, I do think, though, if you meet an investor in an event, mm. you're probably going to try and pitch to them anyway uh, yeah, yeah. because you haven't done, you haven't had the opportunity to do that research. But as you say, like, the information is out there. Mm. you just got to look for it and find it. And if you reach out to an investor and you're not in their investment mm. thesis, then it does make you look a little foolish.
1: Yeah, can you think if you investor, I mean, people don't realize how many emails they get every day, I, I'm imagining, right? I mean, like, you can hundreds, probably thousands of emails from random people you know.
0: Mm.
1: Cause um, did you ever, did you meet Pablo Kasim? Yes. So he was yeah, on a podcast. He's yeah. telling me that um, he gets all the time emails like, you know, this random stuff, right? Like not even close to their thesis, right?
0: Yeah.
1: He's like, no, and, and of course he has an answer, right? But yeah, he says like half his emails every day, like this cold emails, like not, nowhere even close, like,
0: Yeah. I do wonder if founders are trying to just kind of hit as many VCs or investors as they can with the same type of email and just hope that something sticks.
1: Yeah. I mean, Um, it's it's a flawed sales process, right? It's basically just sales process.
0: Exactly. It's a sales process. And of course, you've got to do that kind of marketing Uh, One of the things um, that we have started encouraging founders to do is actually developing like short form video content Mm. that you can kind of quickly get up Mm. because then that gets information about you and what you believe in the public domain. Um, And particularly if you're seeking angel investors, Mm. like it can be a really great way of finding people who may have money to invest, but may not have traditionally thought about themselves as startup investors. Mm -hmm. And of course, then they can get to know you, get to know your beliefs, like see if there's a fit before you've even Mm. met each other.
1: I mean, your dentist could be a potential angel investor, right?
0: Yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, if think about how many high net worth individuals that there are in Seattle. Ooh, oh yeah. Um, I met I met a, a man last week who's building a database of high net worth individuals in the UK. Um, because you know, angel, like if you think about investors, typically they're saturated with all of these deals. Mm. Whereas you have all these people who have become wealthy and who have potentially money that they want to invest. How do they find good deal flow? Um. So I'm hoping something like that will come up um in the US like a network of high net worth individuals that yeah. have not previously invested in startups but would if there was something that was particularly their passion.
1: Yeah. No uh, so mm. are y'all mainly dealing in Seattle or y'all do stuff all across the United States?
0: Uh all over the world. All over the world. Yeah. Okay. We've got um our head office is based in Adelaide mm. in South Australia um but we have we have customers in the US, in the UK, Europe, India, Australia, um all over. Um typically developing countries, because we're a subscription. Um the obviously the, the the subscription price um is typically something that's met by founders in developing countries. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, we're we're all over. We're agnostic to industry, technology, geography, all sorts.
1: What's the upcoming like startup city that's kinda of under the radar right now?
0: Oh, I mean, there are so many. Um one of the interesting places, one of the interesting ways to think about that actually is through um Founders Live, which I don't yeah, even think yeah. we've been out together, yeah. yeah. So I mean, they're they're starting to host events in like Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, like all of these cities all over the world, and you would never have typically thought of them as yeah. startup locations, but you know now it's so cheap. It can be so cheap to build, like you know, there's no code software that like, you really can build a startup from anywhere in the world. It's an exciting time, Um, and I. I mean, I'm not an expert on kind of developing ecosystems. I think startup genome is quite good for that. Um, but it's I always find it exciting to read about these new up and coming places.
1: What's the, like a, a how for this? What's a startup industry that's out there that excites you? Like like a new tech, like maybe AI or VR or what's like a like, new tech out there that excites you?
0: So I mean, generative AI I find completely fascinating. But then doesn't everybody? Um, I think the, the challenge is that there's, there are industries for whom there doesn't exist the data yet to make use of generative AI, but I think the, what's coming in the next few years is going to be just mind-blowing, I think. But one of the most exciting things for me, I reckon, is industries which haven't really been touched by tech. Like, you know, advertising has been completely, completely transformed by technology, but you think, like, construction. You know, I was kind of anticipating that by now there'd be 3D-printed houses everywhere, because, you know, in Dubai, they built, they 3D printed a skyscraper about six or seven years ago. And I'm like, where are the 3D printed houses? And they're still very, very niche. So I think those industries that have not been transformed by tech, that's, I think, where there's going to be a lot of really exciting developments. Um, I mean, my, my passion is climate tech. Climate tech. Yeah. I mean, really, it's the, it's the one thing that if we can really get that right, it's going to be transformative. Um, you know, I think Elon Musk, you know, with his investments in like SpaceX and building SpaceX and Tesla, like you've kind of got kind of the like interplanetary mm. side of things to a certain extent started off. And then also the, you know, this planet, um, I'm, I'm hopeful to be able to stay on this planet, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, well, yeah, we'll see.
1: So next talk about how y'all help people with pitch deck development.
0: Yeah, sure. So Um, So pitch deck development is an interesting one because there's so many places you can go to find the pitch decks of Airbnb and um, Uber, you know, all of these big kind of tech companies. Um, But the challenge with a pitch deck is that it's the business model design that sits underneath it, which is so damn hard. Um, Like it's extremely difficult to design and develop that business model. Um, And then to present it, in and do the storytelling like the storytelling the business model design and the, and the storytelling is the most challenging part of the pitch like you know the, the slides themselves if you have those two things right then they can kind of speak for themselves um, and so a lot of what we do so at Leap sheep we um uh, one of the things that we do is we support founders to develop their pitches and the business model that sits underneath it and so we run those as 10 week programs um, and they're literally, you get kind of guided through this business model design process. And it's not, you know, just to kind of go through it in a linear fashion. You've kind of got to go back and go back. Um, and it really, the pitch, one of the, ven- the benefits of your pitch is it's really everything you know about your business in one place and presented in a way that is compelling to individuals. Um, I mean, the place that we start is usually really all about who your customer is. You know, who's your customer? What's their problem? What are their jobs to be done? What do they want to be successful? And how is your solution going to help them in a way that competitors can't? Um, and that's in many ways that's the easy part. The harder part is the business model design, the unit economics, and the metrics. Um, and and particularly like developing your flywheel. Um, and that flywheel is really you know once you kind of start to pick up customers, kind of you know be- make your product better and better. How are you gonna turn that flywheel to help you to find more customers, more partners, make your solution better? And then that flywheel really starts to spin. Um, and so that's probably one of the most surprising elements that founders get when we work with them on their pitch.
1: So I know a few years ago, I think I got named, named guy Kawasaki had this like the 10 pitches, yeah. three bullet points. Mm-hmm. Now most pre C founders have like slide decks like 15 or 20, maybe even 25 slides, you know, like maybe is it like a perfect I'm sure the answer pimp Is there like a goal somewhere go, yeah. to go? Yeah.
0: So David Rose has got a um a really good training course on this. I mean, we've got our own ideas, but um uh, and uh, methodology. But it's kind of like one one to throw, so like one to give in advance, which is your kind of pitch teaser or pitch deck, which has to be read in less than like a minute or two because you're trying to grab someone's attention. And you've got your like the first pitch um, and typically kind of around 10 10 slides maximum really Um, and that's really designed as a hook to get to a next meeting Um, and then if you get that next meeting then that's when you can have your 20 page kind of all singing all dancing and
1: and all that kind of stuff and like all the research and details yeah
0: yeah so you want to and and again we talk a lot about designing a customer experience and that works for both your customer. So what's the experience that they have from when they first find out about you all the way through to kind of starting with you and then being able to tell other people about you. And the same is true for investors. You wanna design a customer experience for investors. Um, and as you said earlier on, it's a bit like a sales process. Like, you know, you wanna manage that sales process.
1: So how does a founder like know or find out what put each of those pitches, right? Cause, cause I'm, I'm, I'm gonna presume you don't want to put your financials in an intro pitch, right?
0: You want to... It's a great question. So you want to put um, into a first pitch. Typically, a, an investor will want to see financial projections. And the way that we suggest to do this to founders is you want to have kind of our very high level profit and loss mm. that is based on hypotheses. And so those hypotheses have to be really clearly stated. So if we reach this milestone or if our acquisition strategy works as we think, these are what our projections are. Mm-hmm. Because then, you you know, one of the biggest challenges that people hold startups to account on their financial projections, is <laughs> like, I'm still developing my business model. Like how it's can like, I It's possibly... like Google math, right? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. And I mean, really, if you're making these kind of projections, anything more than a year in mm-hmm. advance is complete. It's just, just like, best up. guess.
1: Yeah. yeah. What's it called? Uh, MS University, made shit up university.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, I mean, admittedly, there's a lot of work that goes into those yeah. financial projections, yeah. even though um, <laughs> they are <all> made up. <laughs> yeah, but the, I mean, the, it's all hypotheses. The, the master
1: has to add up, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's all hypotheses, and the challenge comes. Like, I think um, at one point before Tesla was kind of really on the up a few years ago, you had analysts that were really kind of holding them to account against financial projections. Yeah, and you think, well, like, you know, how can they be? Expected? Yeah, people
1: forget for a little bit. Tesla was like on the borderline of like sitting down. Like, yeah. I mean, they were like. Like yeah. danger close of not being a company. Yeah,
0: I know. Yeah, I know. That was, uh, yeah, that was about the time when I wish I had invested in Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> I always said I really should invest in Tesla and never did.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, so my take is like, like I always said like pitch decks are like resumes, right? Like if you're looking for a job, you send a resume to 25 people, you get 25 opinions. I think pitch decks are the same. Send your pitch deck to 25 people. Yeah. And only opinions that matters are VCs. I know you are going to know that opinion is like your network, right? And like, Relationship building.
0: I don't know if I'd agree with that. No, okay. If you so one of the one of the big challenges that we often help founders unpick is is that you get all this different feedback from mm. these different people. Um, and then you end up trying to tackle it all and you have a Frankenstein pitch mm. like just completely mismatched, doesn't mm. work. Um and it's the same if you ask loads of different people about your product. If you get feedback from all sorts of, you know, your friends, your mm. neighbors, then you end up with a Frankenstein product. Yeah. Like the and again, not saying that an investor feedback is not um, appropriate or important or useful because often it is, but you want to get feedback from a lot um, from a lot of people who are your target investor range with okay. whom you fit in their investment thesis um, because that is the feedback that really matters. Okay. And then you want to look for the patterns because, you know, if one person asks for one thing and one person asks for another, you can't possibly do it all. No. You have to look for those patterns. So you're patterns.
1: saying like pretty much like make, make a decision and do your pitch deck
0: yeah. Unless okay. there's a bug in it or like something that mm-hmm. like an investor goes, well, that's just wrong. Like, mm-hmm. I don't agree with that. Yeah. Um. I remember one time we, we put a sentence into our, into um one of our pitches and it was something like, you know, forget everything, you know, about, um about startups. And I, we actually got some feedback from Minda Bruce, if you know her from first, uh, first row. And she said, she's like, well, that actually sounds kind of, it puts my back up that you've said that. <laughs> Because like, you know, I've, I know a lot about startups, like it annoys me that you've told me to forget it. And so that's one thing I thought, hmm, okay, that, that will be one thing that we change when we next update our pitch.
1: One thing that's always been put people in mind, like you go to pitch conferences, right? And the rules are, you know, the final pitch will say like three minutes, only 10 slides, right? And you got all the rest, like you should have this and you should have that in there. Yeah. And like, like, you saw the rules the same, you know, you, it, there's no way you put all this information in a three minute pitch, right?
0: Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it's it's hard. I mean, the the pitch competition format is a challenging one, I think, because every pitch competition is a little different. Mm-hmm. You have different people at them. Um, Really, from my point of view, the point of a pitch competition is it's just helpful to get practice yeah. in pitching in public. And, you know, it's like I'm on a podcast. Like, you know, the more conversations you have, yeah. the, the better you get at explaining your story or the problem that you're solving.
1: It's I, mean, I could be wrong. I don't think anyone's got an investment from winning a pitch, right?
0: No, I don't think. I so. mean, I'm
1: sure. I mean, of course, you got need to build a public, say, practice your pitch, you know, get your stuff out there. But I don't think. Oh man, that's this is, that's this is a great pitch. Let me invest like X amount of money. You know.
0: I mean, it might get your if an investor likes what they're hearing from, mm-hmm. it I mean, might put meeting. them in your mind. Yeah. You might get a meeting. Um, I don't. I'd be interested to know what the data is on that because yeah. so many accelerator accelerator models are predicated on the demo day or the pitch, yeah. and they would be I'd be interested to see that data point, like of all of the founders that present at those demo days, how many of them result in capital? I don't know what that answer is. I don't yeah. know if that data exists, but it'd be interesting.
1: So speaking of accelerators, um, is, I mean, there's somebody out there, right? Some accelerators, incub- incubators, you know, some, I, I think New Chip just closed down recently, you know, mm. that was a bad thing. Is there such a thing as a founder doing too many of these?
0: As a what? A founder? A
1: founder doing too many accelerators, incubators. Oh.
0: I mean,
1: um, because it makes you <sighs> all do the same thing, right? That's yeah. what we say I'm back from too many of these things in the past. The
0: cha- the challenge, I think, with accelerator programs is they, um, in order to get into them, that like, you have to find one that is specific to the industry that you're in, mm. the stage that you're at. Like all these, there's all these specifics around an accelerator. And of course, many of them take equity. Mm. And so founders often, without quite realizing how expensive equity can be in a later stage, mm. give up this equity without really understanding what value they're going to get from the accelerator yeah. program. And then once you're in it, if it's an amazing accelerator, then like, you know, fantastic. But then it's time limited. So then at the end of the accelerator, you kind of dropped off, you drop off a cliff. Yeah. And so then like many founders that we've come across are like, I wasn't really sure what to do next yeah. because They have 7% of,
1: of your company, they might give you $120,000, so which like, you know, yeah. like you said, if you make it 127%, like mark them. Such as millions and millions of dollars, you know.
0: Yeah, and the other issue about them is that often they're quite cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. So you know, it doesn't matter what your context is, your experience, your background, your skills, like the progress that you've made. You're almost certainly going to go through the same um, experience as everyone else, and that experience has been designed before you were selected to go on the program. And so it may or may not be what a founder actually wants. And there's a lot of a lot of bias in yeah. these accelerator programs. And um, don't get me wrong, there are some really good accelerators. And again, there's a lot of really well-meaning and experts that are on them. Uh, but on the whole, I think founders deserve a, a better level of personalization than they typically get.
1: Yeah. So talk about uh, founders doing market research, how important that is.
0: Yeah, sure. So um, so market research is when founders first start, some of the core elements that it's worth knowing is, is and again, you really want to start with your vision for your company. Like, What's the massive transformative impact you want to have, say, 20 years from now? And that gives you really your north star that you're guiding, that you're aiming for. And it also is compelling to bring people on the journey with you. Um, But then in terms of the market research, you want to understand, like, you know, the industry that you're planning on getting into. Like, what are the trends? You know, are there trends that mean that your timing is about right? Are, Are you too early? Might you be too late? Um, who are your competitors? Like what, how are they solving the problem and how, in what ways do they fall short? Um, and those are some of the big things that it's worth doing your market research on. Um, the other element is what's the size of the market? Like if it's a growing market um, or like with Airbnb, they resegmented other markets in order to create a new market that wasn't previously spending on staying in a stranger's house. Like, you know, that's kind of complete segmentation. They built a market um, and it's worth knowing what kind of market you go into. Like Steve Blank talks about the four types of markets and you want to be really clear what they are. Um, you know, for us, we're actually, um, for LeapSheet, we would consider ourselves going into an existing market, which is founders, startup founders. But we're going in with a new product. Like, you know, it's a subscription, expert subscription support service. Like founders are not looking to buy that. So of course there's been an element of education that we've had to do in order to kind of make what we what we help founders with attractive. Um, and we're still, a lot of the time we're still educating now.
1: So what's a startup idea out there that's like, you thought like, and you probably say this I loud, like, man, like there's no way to make this that like, crazy idea ever. You know, no way to make, and then actually like, they like, oh crap, they're actually like making it, so to speak.
0: Oh. Huh. So I don't, I don't know if I have an answer for that. Typically, whenever we've met a founder, I've, there's never been an idea which I've thought is so crazy that it's not possible. One thing that I have found, though, is that we, the more you dig into the idea, you might need to think about more a bit more about who the customer is or what the product is. And so rather than it being a crazy idea, one of the things is actually how can you make this so that it's an idea and a problem that's worth solving? I don't think I've ever come across an idea that I've just gone, that'll never work.
1: Okay.
0: Well, now I'm going to spend the next week <laughs> thinking about that.
1: <laughs> so next, talk about user research and the importance of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, okay. So um, so user research is possibly my favourite topic. Almost no... So that's
1: kind of like your specialty, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it certainly is. So, um, and just so we're clear on what user research actually is as well. So if you go and talk to your customers or potential customers and you tell them about your solution like you say you know this is what i've built this is what i've developed this is what i'm thinking of what do you think that's the exact opposite of user research what user research is all about is really interviewing or like having a really deep conversation with people who you think are your customers to really understand what are they doing day to day like what um, and we call this what, what are your jobs to be done like what are they doing what are they spending their time on What does success look like for them? Um, And again, whether that's at work or in their life, like whatever the context is that's relevant for your startup idea. Um, And then the big question is, is what are some of the biggest challenges or the things that are stopping you from being successful? Um, And really going into detail about what those challenges or problems are or impediments are. And working out what and asking them, like, what's the impact of that problem? What's the, you know, how often is it a problem? Is it really big and significant and frequent, which is ideal? Or is it, you know, perhaps a, a smaller problem, but it's repetitive and it's annoying? Um, and then understanding how existing solutions fall short. Um, and it's a, a framework that we've Put together, but I think you know there's kind of we've taken elements from other frameworks and and merge them. But the point of user research is that you should be interviewing as many customers as you can to deeply understand where are their patterns of problems. Like you know where are their patterns of problems that in a customer that is representative of a market that you can then develop a solution concept that you can then go back and test with the people that you've spoken with. Um, and almost no one's doing it. And the joy of it is that you get this deep customer understanding that almost no one else has because they haven't bothered to put the time in and done the work. Um, Steve Blank calls it, like, get out of the building and talk yeah. to your customers. Yeah. Um, and, it's, and, and the honest truth is, is that um, founders, if they skip this step, they're gonna be going to be going back to it. Like, unless you're lucky enough to have found customers that are literally trying to pull your product from you, And don't we all wish that we were in that situation? Like if you don't do your user research, it's going to trip you up in the future. You're going to make, you're going to design the wrong thing or you're going to build something that no one wants. Um, And so user research, if there's one thing I would say to founders everywhere, make sure you're doing that user research and that you're cataloging it, cataloging what what you learn and you're doing your analysis so that you make sure you build something that the market wants.
1: And that's to be done before you even start building anything, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Of course, most people don't do that
0: almost no one. I think um there's a statistic. I think about eleven percent of people do it. and even that, I doubt it's proper user research. And one of and how you know if you haven't if you're not doing it right is if you go out and you talk and you talk to customers about what you're building and they're like, oh, that's interesting. That's great. You have zero validation that they're going to pay or that they care. And so many founders I meet, they're focused on that launch. Like I'm going to launch that MVP. I'm going to launch it. But actually your MVP really, I, w- I wish Eric Reese had, had not called it minimum viable product mm. because really it's your, it's your solution concept. It should, your first MVP should be the concept that you share back with your potential customers and get validation that it's, it solves their problems and that they would pay to use it.
1: Can you talk about beta testing, Nick?
0: Yeah. I mean, we don't particularly talk, use the term beta testing that much um, just because there's kind of two. There's kind of two aspects to it. So one, which is, you know, how can you cheaply and quickly get a prototype or a concept into the hands of your customers? So they can play with it. They can see how it would work. I guess te- technically that's the first element of beta testing. But then there's also the next bit, which is once you have that validation that it's worth building a product because your potential customers want it and they're just waiting for you to give it to them. And the next stage is right. Okay, well, once you have paying customers then you're in testing mode again and continuously every time you make an update so that you can kind of understand like, you know, how are they using it? What are they using it for? Is is it, does it technically work? Is it helping your customers to be successful? Because if it's not, then in the jobs to be done that you understood and learned, then there's no validation that you're going to be able to sell to more customers or that they'll keep using it and they won't churn. So it's just kind of constant iteration, experiment and testing. Um, and it's very hard, I think, to have the, the diligence and the processes to do it well.
1: So, your customer startups, would you have a, like a perfect customer, like a certain revenue startup, pre seed startup? And of course, like the perfect customer, so to speak.
0: Yeah, sure. So, I mentioned earlier, we will work with really any startup founder or any entrepreneur. Um, our ideal customer is what we would call a go getter customer. They're typically very early stage, pre product. Pre-revenue, um, and um, that's really our sweet spot. Um, that that's kind of a lot of our product is built to service and support founders who are in those early stages. Particularly, and one of the problems that we think we solve is there's so there's no playbook at the moment for startups, and we are building that playbook, and we're doing it by kind of testing it manually with subscribers, kind of working out what works, what doesn't kind of including elements of diagnostics and interventions in there to support founders. Having said that, we've got a number of subscriber customers who've been with us for years um, and they're very much in that kind of hitting product market fit and then starting to scale their growth. Um, so whilst I would say our ideal customer is go-getter founders, um, we work with any founders.
1: So these, these customers have been you for a long time. Yeah. Is there a point where you say, okay, you know, Jason, you've been with for like 25 years. You might want to think about doing something else.
0: So I think the longest customer that we have is five years. Um, um, Richard Kwan, who's the CEO of Curatech. And we met him when he was pretty young. He came onto the startup scene in Adelaide and he said, I'm going to build a billion dollar company from Adelaide. Like, I'm the first billion dollar company. Um, and he told us kind of a few years later that kind of everyone kind of laughed and was like, There's no way you're going to do that. Um, You know, who is this guy? Um, But over the time, we've worked with him on four different startups, um, um, all under the Kiratech banner, but kind of he's done like four big pivots. And the the element that we're helping him with now is actually building out his leadership team, kind of embedding the metrics that he needs to be able to demonstrate scale and helping him to really reach product market fit um, in order to scale And we've also helped him with that whole bootstrapping thing. So he's really been bootstrapping for the last couple of years and doing really well as a result of it. So I think often founders stay with us for a long time because we have that element that's built into our model, which is really that kind of challenge, that coach, but also the diagnostics. It's like, well, how do you know what the next thing you have to work on is? And usually founders don't know because there's no playbook. And so that's what we are doing at Leap Sheep is helping them with that playbook and then also helping them to meet their goals and get to market fit and then scale.
1: So do our founders find you or do you, find the, are you, find, or do you all find the founders?
0: A mixture. Um, typically we have, most of our subscribers come from referrals from existing customers. Um, sometimes we meet people at events um, and we've just started to invest a bit more in LinkedIn marketing. And I've just done my first TikTok video this morning. <laughs> um to and that's a bit of an experiment really um so a bit of both so sometimes we contact founders sometimes they find us um but I'm it's quite interesting because now that I have been going to events in Seattle for the last kind of year or two sometimes founders will come up to me um now which is kind of nice um I'm not none I'm not a sales person like I hate I hate the I hate the concept of sales I'd rather just help a founder and then if, if they end up subscribing to Leap Sheep, then great. And if they don't, then at least I've given them some help.
1: So is this a true or false statement? Yes. Build it and they will come. False.
0: <laughs> false. Unless you, unless you preface it with do your market research mm-hmm. and then your user research and then test your solution concept and then build it and they will come. And of course, there's the marketing element there, which is you need to make sure you've got your marketing that resonates with your customer problems. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah, it, oh, yeah, I think I answered that.
1: Yes. <laughs> so, um, how do you take care of yourself?
0: Ooh, um, I, so I've got two daughters who I absolutely love spending time with. Um, so, spending time with them is always a bit of a joy. Um, I'm outside of the kind of toddler and small child age, so it's just that sweet spot where they're great to hang out with. Um, I love hiking, so I try and fit that in as much as I can. Um, and, I play tennis, I run, and I really like lake swimming. So I try and fit as much of those kind of things into my life as I can. Um, it's a bit challenging. I don't know about you, but when I'm at home, I tend to turn on the laptop and start working. <laughs> I think it's just part of being in a startup. Like, yeah. like what? Well, oh, I could do this, I could do that. So I had to force myself to get out of the house um, in order to stop working.
1: And your company is a fully remote company, right?
0: Yeah, fully remote.
1: Can you talk about some of the challenges, I guess, like, Talk about the pros and cons of being in a remote company.
0: Yeah. So I'm an extrovert. So being in a remote company is hard for me. Um, and I manage that by having my fill of talking to people at events or, and we we use Zoom. Um, we, the benefits of being remote is that we're not limited by geography in terms of who we can hire, who we can take on as a subscriber. Like we can literally take on any any founder anywhere in the world because we're fully remote. So that's great. And then the other thing that we work really hard on is our team culture. Um, like we've got, um, uh, we fully embedded Agile in our team. So, you know, we have stand-ups like three days a week. We have showcase and retrospectives. And one of the ways that I think we promote a really good culture is by kind of calling out like appreciations and also company successes, things we could do better every at each retrospective. And so every two weeks, if not more than that, you kind of get an opportunity to feel good about the work that you've done or to thank somebody for the work that they've done. Um, and I mean, tools like Miro, Slack, Dropbox, Trello, Zoom in particular, um, have made it so easy to work remotely. Having said that, I do miss working in an office.
1: <laughs> so every two weeks I do like the successful thing?
0: Yeah, yeah. So you basically showcase anything that we've released in the sprint. Um, and then we'll, um, the, the format we use is like what successes have we or our customers had in the sprint? what um, things haven't gone quite so well and kind of why has that been um we call out any ahas that we've had so you know sometimes we're like you're in the shower and you go oh, ah you know that thing about the investment thesis it's like why you know i really need to only be speaking to investors whom i fit with their investment thesis Like that's you know a great aha so we'll call that out at a retrospective um and then appreciations and then the other thing we do is we have kind of very clear values and we call out Kind of evidence and examples of people who have demonstrated those values in the team in the sprint, and then of course that leads people to see what good looks like, mm-hmm. and of course more people want to embody yeah. the values, um, and so it's kind of a self perpetuating good culture.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I would never do this, but I think a good practical joke would like do the opposite. Like one time, like call out somebody's failures. You know, yeah. Jason jacked this up totally. He cost us two million dollars. You know, yeah.
0: I mean that that's a challenge. <laughs> Um, one thing that I find really interesting and I really like is often in companies, if something goes wrong, it's easy to blame an individual. Yeah. Um, whereas typically, especially in a startup, like, you know, everyone's trying their best, everyone's working hard. Often it's good to call out where, you know, perhaps you haven't got the systems in place for something or, you know, a message isn't landing. And so, whereas it, might be it's the way that you talk about something that hasn't gone well mm. i mean a two million way a two I mean, million a bad issue bad example, is a problem yeah, yeah. yeah but um yeah but it's quite a nice way of doing it and mm. then if there are any performance issues then we call them out individually in one-on-ones but not
1: in front of the whole team what time zone do, do you all run the company off of
0: we are on an australian time zone
1: that must suck for you
0: yeah. So I work. Yes. Yeah, so in fact, my working day typically starts at my meetings rather well, they start at three o'clock and they go through to about 10 in the evening. But I also have customers. At least,
1: at least that's not three in the morning, Ten two in the morning.
0: Yes. Yeah. So I don't start any earlier than seven and I don't work any later than 10 typically. Okay. Um, but then I've also got customers in the UK and in the US. Mm-hmm. So I like now I can often be in meetings kind of all, like quite a long way through uh, from seven till 10.
1: So how do you take care of your customers?
0: Yeah, sure. So we have, so um, when you say take care, I'm about to explain how we do what we do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. Um, so we have kind of three core parts to our model. Um, we have structured mentoring and that's really designed. We have trained startup experts who we've trained on our systems that we have built over so time. how do
1: you validate this as actually a trained expert? Like how does that work?
0: Yeah. So um, the, um, how we have done it to date, which is different from how we'll do it in the future um, but we have built up, we spent seven years researching startup best practice and then codifying it into a system with four pathways. Um, and then we have taken, so some of our team have had experience with multiple startups. And some of us, you know, like me, I LeapSheep is the first startup that I have worked in. And so I have trained myself and um, to being a startup, uh, like expert startup advisor. Um, and our hypothesis is, is that through having a great body of knowledge and training that we can train up many more true startup experts than can be created through lived experience. It's the same as seeing a doctor, right? Like you don't expect someone to have broken their arm to be able to treat your broken arm. Like why do we expect true startup expertise to be in people who've built five or more startups? Um, and so that's, that's one way we do it. So every time a person has a mentoring session, it's with a trained startup building expert. So that's one element. So there's the kind of the mentoring and really what that's about is helping to set goals to help founders get to product market fit and then breaking those down into steps. And so some of it is around helping founders achieve goals, but a lot of it is working out, like right, what's the biggest problems that you have right now? What's blocking you? What's stopping you? Um, and then kind of overcoming that and then working out what the next thing is. And so it's kind of very much a question of kind of like diagnosing where a founder's at, kind of prescribing a plan to to help them unblock themselves and make progress. And then we course correct. And that's, I think, why founders have been with us for so long is that element of course correction. It's frequent and it's regular. And whoever they work with in Leap Sheep, like we're all trained on the same body of knowledge. And so they're gonna get consistent advice.
1: So what kind of access do they have to y'all? Like can I email you 24, seven hours a day? It's like certain times of the week they can call you. How's that work?
0: Yeah, so we have um, kind of core contact time. Um, and again, this is different now to what it's going to be. So we have so each founder, based on their subscription level, um, they start with one um, hour and a half mentoring session a month. And then we also do um, education and coaching. So that user research topic, like I did a session last night with I think, 10 founders and that taught them how to do user research, like how to set it up, how to do the interviews, how to analyze it. And so then founders will get another a session like that for a topic that's the the most important thing that they need. And then outside of that, if they have things that they want, like if they want their pitch deck reviewed, if um, we do introductions, like warm introductions, and so they can just contact us at any time. Um, typically, we'll, if unless it's extremely urgent, you know, we'll respond within a reasonable time mm-hmm. limit. Um, if it's urgent, then we'll jump on a call um, to help a founder.
1: So, from Leapsheet's point of view, what's success we are? Is success like ninety percent of your founders raise a million dollars? Is it like? 10% realize this isn't for them. Like what's success?
0: Yeah. So so our vision is to transform startup success rates. Cause at the moment they're kind of if you look at the data, they're anywhere between 95 to 99% failure rates. Um and you know, we want to transform that so that if you're a founder, you can have a reasonable chance of success. Um are we gonna get those failure rates down to zero? No. But a success for us is how how much can we move the needle to help many, many more more founders be successful? Because even if it's half like that's, you know, founder anguish halved because it is hard and it's brutal to start a startup. Um, for us, I mean, we, we do measure our, our success metrics, our capital raise for our founders, because that's a, you know, that's a metric that is captured elsewhere. And then also founder survival rate. So we capture our, um, like have founders been in business five years after they've formed, um, just because that's another metric that helps us to prove whether we have. Um, help them to be successful. So those are our two core metrics that we track.
1: So let's say in five years, the failure rate goes like down to 20%. How do y'all prove that was you though? Like how do you prove that that was your, you're doing?
0: Yeah. So we've, um, I mean, it's a great question. And the honest answer is, is that we'll never be able to truly prove that it's us. Sometimes you have amazing founders and they're going to be successful with or without leap sheep. Um, So the, The question of attribution is one that I don't think we've answered yet. All we know and all we can do is track the founders that are in our portfolio um, and their rates compared to the median outside of LeapSheet.
1: And your founders, you say, all over over the world right now?
0: Yeah, so we've got, so the two kind of founding um, uh, individuals is Kirk Drage, who's our CEO, and then Catherine Heaton, who's our Mm -hmm. COO. They are both based in Adelaide. Um, I'm a co-founder. I'm here in Seattle. And then our, product manager, our head of product, Terry Saw, she's in Brisbane, so also in Australia.
1: And do you all come to the, like, the team at the same time or like different times?
0: Um, so I joined a year after LeapSheet formed and Terry joined a year after that.
1: Okay. Yeah. So what are some of your responsibilities as, as a co-founder?
0: Yeah, so I've got a number of roles, just like anyone in a startup. Um, so my core, um, so I'm a startup building advisor um, in the way I've just described. Um, I also do a lot of um, our education workshops. So I deliver kind of probably twenty-five different topics. Um, I also do a lot of the design and development of our education content. Um, I um, I do our pitch deck development, and I we also do pitch assessments. So um, kind of providing a diagnostic that supports founders know if they're ready to raise capital. Um, I head up our support function, um, and I am also head of customer success. So yeah, and a you, lot of a you, lot of roles.
1: Any feet the floor, take it the trash. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean I do county. Any any anytime we start a new kind of package of work I'll typically like I love to I'm one of those people that um I was always volunteering and I continue to do that now um and I love kind of helping get solution concepts off the road. Um I also do um I kind of head up our research function as well. So all our user research or our market research I kind of head up that capability. But then I have got people who I can kind of um, who were working for me. Yeah. Um, so I'm not doing all of that myself. Like okay. We've got kind of junior team members that are doing a lot of that.
1: Well, the pitch deck uh, itself, is, is this the pitch deck itself or do you actually like critique them on the, the actual pitch?
0: Um, it's So the assessment is both the content and also the storytelling. Mm-hmm. And the storytelling and the pitch is such a tricky one because in you know, that first, when you first introduce yourself, you have to establish your trust and credibility. Mm-hmm. And then you have to kind of make sure that you are really getting people bought into the problem that you're solving and getting, you know, like kind of Hollywood storytelling principles apply here. And then you've got to talk about your traction. And when you talk about your traction, you have to make out, like you have to be honest about what you've validated and what you don't. And so there's that element of vulnerability that comes in there. Yeah. And then, you know, when you have the ask, you know, you've also got to be careful about how you make the ask and what you're saying. And so there's so many nuances in, in that. Um, and we've developed our pitch deck. Model to help founders ad, ad, um, to work out both the business model side and then also the storytelling side.
1: I just thought right now it's like when you're pitching, like it's almost like you you have like a McDonald's hamburger, right? But you got to sell it like like it's a like, you know life steak, you know?
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, this is what it looks like right now. Yeah,
1: but this was the, the vision gonna be over here. Yeah.
0: But interestingly though, because and again that's because you've got your vision, mm-hmm. which is maybe twenty years into the future. What's the impact you want to have? One of the things that again is counterintuitive is if you can be really honest with investors about some of the challenges that you have found, because if you think about from an investor point of view, if a founder tells me that everything's amazing and everything's great, where do I add value yeah. whereas actually you know one of the things that we have had to work really hard at is our marketing like we um none of us have had um a ton of experience in marketing and one thing that we have not focused on enough until probably this year, is our marketing. And so actually being honest about that in a pitch to an investor, like it invites an investor to want to contribute or to help or to offer an opinion. And so having that two-way engagement is actually more effective at building relationships and trust with an investor than somebody who's going, oh, well, everything's amazing. We're going to get hit 200% year, like month-on-month growth by September. Like I actually think most investors want founders to be more honest and upfront about where they have challenges.
1: Is that thing as being too honest? I mean, this might be a bad example. Yes. Suppose the founder goes to a VC. Hey, you know, I'm, 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 I'm depressed right now. I'm having, mental, it, it, I'm having mental health issues. Is that being too honest? Or are you thinking, Absolutely.
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, if you have these kind of challenges and, and again, not to mock it because fundamental health is a massive issue. Like there is isn't. I don't think there's a job as hard as being a founder of a startup. Like it's, it's, it's extremely draining. It's hard to keep motivated and persistent. And, you know, we see a lot of that in our mentoring sessions. Like a lot of, sometimes they are counseling sessions. And really that's the kind of thing that you might say to a therapist rather than an investor. Um, yeah, that's, that's probably my advice there. So, Those kind of things go to a therapist.
1: <laughs> so what makes someone a horrible founder?
0: Ooh, um. So I've never met a horrible founder, but there are a few elements that make it challenging to work with some founders. So if somebody has a very big ego um, or they're uncoachable or they, you know, they're so set on their opinion on something that they can't listen to another, that's, it's hard to work with those with founders who are like that. Um, we always say that we don't work with any, that's in fact, that's our one thing is that we only work with founders who have a growth mindset Um, and that's one where you're kind of keen to learn kind of open-minded to new ideas and new approaches and not completely set that your way is the only way of doing it. Um, That would be the one thing I would say if you come across a founder who is hell-bent on their way and can't listen to feedback it's almost impossible to work with them.
1: How quickly can you all like figure that out? Does it take a couple of days, a month,
0: in the first meeting. First meeting. Usually.
1: usually yeah. use like, really, like yeah. you, like you just tell.
0: We always meet a founder before we start working with them. And sometimes we will say, we're not the right fit for you. Like, good luck. Like, and there might be, you know, sometimes we make referrals to other things that might mm-hmm. be kind of more appropriate for them. But typically like we would, um, yeah, it's, it's just not a good fit. Like our model doesn't work if you're uncoachable.
1: So do people have to apply for your program or is it like as long as they pay the money or pay the whatever it is?
0: We work with any founder that subscribes. Okay. okay. Um, even, even if they're not a great fit. Um, and that's, I think, one attraction of Leap Sheep. You don't have to jump through any hoops. There's no, you know, there's no cohort start date, no end date. You literally subscribe. And as long as you get value, you can keep subscribing. Um, we also have subscription levels. So if you want to go faster or get help get more help faster, you can go up a level. And if actually you've, there's so much going on that you need to go down a level, you can at any stage.
1: We talked earlier about building a public, but what about those CEOs, you know, like, you know, they're like not comfortable speaking in public, like they're kind of introverted and they're not really good storytellers. How do y'all help them overcome yeah. that?
0: So, t- so, So there is an extent to which you can help people to build those skills. If people don't have them though, then the best way around it is to find a co-founder that has those skills. Mm. Um, yeah, that's I think the best approach is if 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 a founder wants to try and is open-minded and keen to practice and practice and, and take it on and get feedback, great. If not, co-founder.
1: What's like a one characteristic y'all look for look looking for in a startup or co-founders? Uh, um,
0: co-founders or founders. Or founder, founders. Founders. Just coachability. Okay. Yeah. And the other thing is um, so our the model that we have is very much customized to an individual founder's needs, but it's based on a system that is we've kind of tried and tested and practiced. Um, if we find that founders kind of come to the sessions, like they come to the mentoring session, they come to the education, but they don't put it in practice, uh, they're not going to make the progress that they want. It's like, you know, if you kind of turn up to and meet a dietitian about what you should eat and then you just keep eating burgers, <laughs> like you're not going to lose weight. And the same is true with us and the founders we work with. Um, and sometimes one of the things I think is a big aha for people that we work with is once they start putting the work in and like focusing on the things that we work on in the session, that's when they make the fastest progress. And so of course that's when they go, oh, okay, actually I'm really getting value here. I'm going to keep doing the work, keep doing the actions.
1: We talked earlier about like how long the the journey actually is. How Often, do you have to tell founders like you know it's not going to be done in too much right. How, like like reality takes all so the to time.
0: Speak. All the time. I mean, I'd say I probably say that ten times a week. Um, there are no there are no shortcuts. Well, that's not true. If you are very lucky and you have market pull, then you can shortcut some elements. So that's another thing actually about our kind of our pathways and our system is that you don't. It's not like an education or you go to university and you learn entrepreneurship. With that, you have to do every single thing and every single topic. Like with us, if you have evidence of market pool and you've got it from multiple individuals, then great. Like skip some steps. Like the only reason that we have our subscription is to help founders to go faster, reduce their risk and spend their resources as effectively as possible. Um, most of the time, though, there's a lot of work to do at going back to that customer discovery, the user research, and then Either updating or redoing the solution concept, or just the way that you explain it, because sometimes you find that there's an, a problem that's extremely interesting that your solution can actually solve. You just haven't thought about it that way, and so then there's just the marketing and the packaging that has and the customer experience around it that has to change, and that's the most interesting I think when founders go, "Oh my God, I've almost accidentally built the right thing. <laughs> I'm just selling it wrong or marketing it wrong." Um, yeah, that's, and again, I, I love having these conversations with founders um, just because it's, they're. I've never met a founder who was not fascinating and interesting. Um, and so I feel pretty lucky and privileged that I get to spend all of my time helping founders.
1: Earlier we talked about like only less than 1% of founders actually raise money. Yeah. But even then that's like, probably half of those still fail, right? More than. More than that, still fail. So again, the money is not an indicator of being successful. No.
0: If you look at the data, I think out of VC investments, and again, this data is, I think, from 2014 from, you know, I'm not going to try and remember the source, but there's data that says that six out of 10 investments that uh, that VC makes yield a negative return or no return. And so four out of 10 yield some sort of return. Typically, 1% or 2% yield those kind of big unicorn, like 100x returns.
1: I'm I'm probably making this up, but I think a stat that says, like, X, the more money founders raise, the more likely they'll fail versus founders raise the right amount of money or more successful.
0: Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I'd say so, because if you have a ton of money um, in the bank, you don't have to be resourceful with how you Mm -hmm. spend it. You know, you can waste it on all the wrong things. Whereas if you... And this is why bootstrapping is such an effective tactic for startups, or can be an effective strategy, is because you have to be extremely—you have to extremely challenge yourself all the time about how you're spending money, what you're spending it on, you know, have you spent it on the right things? And you're constantly reassessing and reevaluating. Whereas if you have millions in the bank, you're probably going to waste it. Like you know, um, I don't know if you need rethink robotics. Um, they were they, and again, they used to have kind of some of their robots in that in the museum, the technology museum that. Paul Allen had that shut down, but you know they had I think over seven hundred million in capital, but they ended up having to shut down because they had designed their robots with the wrong type of server meters server meters. um And so when they realized who their core customer segment was, it was manufacturing companies, but they'd spent all this money designing robots that couldn't precisely pick up different objects, and they ended up shutting down, and you just think, "Oh, seven hundred million. yeah. Yeah.
1: Whoa. That's insane. So this is a pre-seed startup right there. They're trying to raise money. They're yeah. like little, no traction. Mm-hmm. How do they overcome that?
0: There, so there are, there are ways to find traction at any stage. So evidence, you know, I don't want to go, keep going on about user research, but like evidence of the number of customers that you've spoken with, mm-hmm. like records of the... Uh, interviews that you've had where you've defined the problem like evidence of the analysis that you've done like you know all of that is evidence of traction um that is where I would say and for pre-seed that's the that's the way to get it um and and being really focused on exactly who your niche customer is getting that evidence and then being able to explain it um and demonstrating you know the trends because a lot of pre-seed well, how pre-seed is supposed to operate is that you're supposed to be able to find <laughs> investors. being the key word here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you're supposed to be able to find investors that are so, that they they believe in you. Mm-hmm. And there's that founder investor fit, which is a really important part of all stages, but particularly pre-seed. Like if they believe the story that you have and you've got the evidence and the, the research you put the time in and you've put the time into that user research, like that is great evidence of traction, and it's going to mean that you start to build the right thing rather than falling down into the trap of build it and they will come.
1: How do y'all help uh, your founders? Um, like, do y'all do introductions to VCs? How do you help them raise money?
0: Yeah, so we the introductions to VCs we do do on a small scale, and it's something that we are continuing to build as we build out our the software that kind of we've tested and done manually over the last seven years. Um, at the moment, we do make some introductions to VCs and to investors, um, and we also do the work to support founders to get their pitch decks and their storytelling and you know their due diligence up to date. Like a lot of the education that we have for our subscribers, um, we have a, a topic on capital raising, a topic on your due diligence, um, and a topic on developing your pitch deck. And so that's that's the way that we help founders at the moment. Um, thinking ahead, you know, our vision into the future is that. You know right now we are very much focused on the founder side because if the founder side of our kind of two-sided platform doesn't work, then you know we we're we're validating and proving that we can add value to founders and create many more successful founders. And over time, we will then be looking into certifying founders as kind of leap sheep founders. And our intention is is that actually in the future, investors will and again, this is a hypothesis, but that an investor would go, oh, they're a leap sheep founder. Like we can see that they, you know, they're running stand-ups. They're putting the effort into user research. They're kind of testing and iterating and doing that build, measure, learn. These are the founders that we want to invest in because we can see that they are following a risk-managed approach to building a, found, a startup.
1: Have you all found that like, founder mentality is different based on different locations or is a founder the founder regardless of where they're at?
0: Oh, great question. So, found. I mean, founder mentality I have very much founder, build it and they will come mentality a lot in Seattle, but not with everybody. Like I met a few really amazing founders last week at Founders Bash um, and who really were focused on understanding their customer before building. Um, Typically, I find that, you know, you've got and again, I'm generalizing here massively, but often the younger the founder, you know, they've got they've got the energy and they will spend hours and hours and hours working and they've got the persistence and the grit. But sometimes they spend, they're, they're so keen to build. Um, and again, this is a general, generalization, but sometimes they can be so keen to build that they try and skip steps and then they have to go back to them. Um, whereas when you have particularly founders who have worked in business before working in a startup, or perhaps you know, they've worked in education or a company, typically they will have a more considered approach. And so they're not, they don't really want to go fast. They want to do things right. Um, there's are a few generalizations. Um, yeah. And I mean, there's, there's so many different types of, of founders. We, we, one kind of our personas, we've got kind of builder founders that just want to build. And so you have to make sure that they've done enough that they're building the right thing. And then you have kind of more cautious founders who want to make sure that they do as much as they can to get it right whilst also still going fast.
1: So next is like a two part question. Can you talk about the Seattle tech startup scene and networking in Seattle?
0: I actually really love networking in Seattle. Um, there's so, I mean, there's so many events. I only managed to go to a handful of them because I'm usually working Australian hours. Um, I, yeah, I mean, my favourite year event of the year is Founders Bash, just because there's so many people that are at it. Um, and I mean, I love the energy and enthusiasm that you find whenever you talk to anybody. And like, you know, the investors in Seattle are also great. Um you know, they're always keen to help, keen to make introductions, like all of those kind of things. Um, I absolutely love the Seattle ecosystem. I think it sometimes gets a bad press. Um, like, you know, when you compare it to Silicon Valley or others, and it is it's a more conservative investor landscape, I think, in Seattle. Um, but there's there's so much good stuff to it. Um, I've started um I've been going to the kind of the Seattle, there's like a Seattle female founder, funder poker nights, um, which I have Really enjoyed over the last year, and it's a great way to make connections and also encourage, particularly women, to be more risk taking. Because um, typically, women do tend to be less less risk takers. Um, and so that's you know, there's there's so many things going on in Seattle. It's a little hard to keep track of it. I think I've heard you say the same.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so here's one. So in Seattle, I, mean, I think in Seattle, you could do, you could probably do two events a day if you wanted to, right? So how does a? Of course, you got to get out in the public build network. But how do you balance doing that and still building your product right?
0: Yeah. The often you find at events is founders that are still searching for kind of what their solution is, what their product is. Typically, once founders have got VC money, they're typically working so damn hard that they don't tend to go to so many events. Um, I'd say it is a balance. Each time you go to an event, you want to think, like, what am I getting out of this? So, for example, like I go to Founders Live every month because it's a great place to meet founders and to talk to founders and to have fun with other founders. Um, and that's why I go there. Like I love going to founders life for that reason. Um, I, so I think it's kind of think what you want. Is it peer support? Is it connections? Like if you go, you know, there's a lot of um, events out there run typically by VCs or law firms about like, you know, how to attract and raise funding and all that kind of stuff. Um, and again, if you have a problem there and you, that's the kind of thing that can help. And it's a good event to go to. But I think if you're going to more than one or two events a week, you're probably going to too many events.
1: So how do you all make money?
0: Uh, So we have a subscription. So we don't take equity. We just um, take subscription revenue. And then we, things like our pitch deck development. That's a service that we sell um, that's additional to the subscription.
1: And yet, how do y'all figure out your pricing model? Was it like trial and error or just do some dart to the wall? Or? Yeah.
0: So we ran a series of experiments when we first started before we'd built out the kind of all the the body of knowledge that sits underneath everything. um, We like our, you know, our first MVP was our CEO, Kirk, with a whiteboard and a pen mm-hmm. in Adelaide. And we charged, I think our starting price was 300 Australian dollars. That's about 200 US a month. Um, for a mentoring session and an education session and the education session was Kirk and the whiteboard and his knowledge that he's built up over decades um, and so then from that we then experimented with you know could we have um, subscribers subscribing for a minimum of three months six months, six months, 12 months um, you know and then we we did raise our prices as we've brought on more team mm-hmm. um, and at the moment our prices I think that they start at 600, 650 a month for our kind of lowest level um, but again the prices that we have now As we build out software to make what we have Mm self-service, like our intention is, is that we'll be able to massively reduce the price for a completely Mm self-service kind of AI advisor offering, Um, and that will mean that we can democratize access to what we have that's currently behind a paywall. So that if you're anyone in the world with an idea, you can use our SaaS solution to help you to validate and test it, and go through all the, the kind of steps that I've talked to you about.
1: Yeah. So, when you bring in, bring on a, a, a startup, is it or like plus, is that only for the founder? Everyone in the team, like who gets access?
0: Yeah. So we it it very much depends on what the founder wants. Sometimes the particularly if they don't have a co-founder but they have a team, typically we start with just the founder so that they can kind of get everything off their chest, kind of like discuss things that are all about the strategy of the business, and then they potentially bring their team members on. Um, um, and it's very much as the founder chooses. Um, having said that uh, with Richard Kwan, who I mentioned in Kiratech, we have his whole leadership team. They come so that we can kind of test out ideas and help them with things as a team. Um, but, and again, it, it just depends what the founder wants over time. I think we'll build that into our pricing, but at the moment it's the same price, whether it's one founder or the whole team.
1: Okay. And then have y'all found a difference? Does it really matter if there's one co one founder, two co-founders, three or more co-founders that, does that really make a difference?
0: So the evidence tends to suggest that if you have co-founders, you're more likely to be successful. Okay. Um, for us, the it's sometimes the role that we take on in the mentoring is that of a co-founder. It's the challenge, the kind of the questioning and the evidence to support that challenge. Um and so whilst I and again, sometimes we've found that co founder to co managing the tension between co founders can be a real challenge particularly if you have one full-time co-founder and one that's perhaps working another job. A lot of
1: jobs actually like blow up because of that, right?
0: Yeah, and sometimes we've helped founders to manage kind of um, dissolving the co-founder situation. And of course, with equity and equity agreements, it can be very tricky and complicated. But sometimes the best solution is for one co-founder to leave the business.
1: It would have been a, a, a thing where like you had a co-founder, like I, I appreciate hustle and Grind, but you can't work 22 hours a day for the rest of your life. Like you need to get some sleep. Like you need to do something else.
0: I have had that conversation a few times with founders. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because, um, you know, you're going to burn out. You can't, you might be able to do that for six months or a year. And maybe if you're in your twenties, maybe two years, three years, but uh, you're going to, you know, if you're not getting sleep, if you're not exercising, if you're not taking a break, then you are going to burn out and you won't. And that will hurt your chances of being successful. I know everyone says, like, before you start a capital raise, you want to make sure you've got your sleep good, mm-hmm. your diet, your exercise built in, because otherwise you just can't do it.
1: Yeah, And that's um, very true. And how many customers do you have right now?
0: Yeah, we've got um, around 50 customers right now, 50 subscribers. Um, and we're about to take on a ton more. We also um, power the accelerator program for a couple of universities. Um, and so we're about to take on a cohort there. Um, but our own paying subscribers, we've got for about 50.
1: What's the max y'all can take care of, so to speak?
0: Um, I mean, if we were to get an extra three hundred subscribers mm-hmm. tomorrow, we wouldn't be able to manage it. But okay. because our numbers kind of are growing gradually, mm-hmm. then as we need more resource, we can take it on. And we've just brought on another, like building advisor, in the last couple of weeks.
1: Is there a city you're not in that y'all want to be in?
0: Um, the answer to that is no, okay. just because, um like unlike accelerator programs or kind of investors, we don't really have a city. Um, we would, we really will work with any founder anywhere.
1: Okay. So here's one for you. So like, yeah. and I don't I know here in the States, like a lot of tech startups are like, you know, San Francisco, Seattle, Austin, Boston. Mm-hmm. That's the VC money is, but like, but, but suppose there's a founder saying like, you know, favor are right? Like, how do you, how do you like, I am what i looking for, like, how do you make sure they get access to everything they need, right?
0: Yeah. It's becoming so much easier, particularly since the pandemic. Mm. <laughs> um, as long as people have Wi-Fi and an internet connection, like, you know, whether you're in a rural area or in a city. Um, I mean, obviously, if, if you're someone like Silicon Valley, in many ways, you know, and you are able to get connections, you're probably going to be successful because the ecosystem is very mature. Mm. Um, but if, I mean, our whole model is predicated on the fact that you can find found a business from anywhere. Like it's it's accessible, it's easy to do. Um, I mean, I guess it would be a challenge if you were building a solution for farmers and you lived in a, in a city and you could never actually talk to farmers face to face because farmers are the kind of people that actually you need to get out there and talk to them. Like if you're not willing to do that, Mm. then you're probably building the wrong type of business. But in that case, it's like, well, maybe we can help you with a different customer segment and a different product idea. Um, Occasionally we've, we've suggested and recommended to founders that they close their businesses down. Mm. But on the whole, We've been able to help founders to pivot until they will find the right customer, the right segment, the right investor.
1: And do you all help with, like, with hiring people?
0: Yeah, we do do that as well. As okay. a, um, I mean, we do that through the subscription. Mm-hmm. Typically things like, you know, who, I mean, this is a great question as well, is who do you hire and when? Um, and often we'll be helping founders with the right hires because people are quick to hire a software developer but often actually the, the skills that they need initially yeah. are like people who can talk to customers and do research yeah. and kind of come that, up with concepts.
1: Does, does the person know your tech stack, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, and so. Do you yeah. even
1: know your tech stack?
0: Well, I know quite. And do you know what tech stack you need right now versus what tech stack you'll move into in the future? Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned earlier on our pathway model, but. You know, there's kind of four pathways and the one that most people are broadly familiar with, thanks to Steve Blank and the startup owner's manual is the innovate pathway to get to product market fit. There's also like, who do you need on your team and, and who do you need at the right time on your team? There's, you know, what, how are you operating your business model? Like if you're paying money on paid ads and you don't have any customers, like how do you know what you should be, what the ads are going to say? Because you haven't been able to get a paying customer yet. It's too early for paid ads. You want to be spending time with people, understanding how they talk, how they talk about their problem. Um, And then the last one is the capital pathway. Like, how do you extend your runway in the best way that's appropriate for you? And we typically find that we work with individual founders to work out where they are in each journey, each of those four pathways, and then help them to make progress along each of the four, not just build the product. Because if you, um, there's some great data actually on inconsistent scaling. Like, so many founders, a focus on the product, the product, the product, and then of course it's like, oh shit! Actually, I need to build a team. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I don't know how many processes and systems. And one of the things we do at Leap Sheep is help you to build the right things at the right time.
1: Yes, yeah, like somebody we found us like, on one hand, they're like product, 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 no marketing, and the verses marketing, 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 and no product, right? Yeah, I think it's hard. I like, could get a link. The balance yeah. is hard to do.
0: It's it's hard. It's it's a balancing act. Um, and I mean we're. I, we are working hard to try and build a playbook for that and to make it accessible, but it is a hard journey. like we' spent seven just over seven years on it now, and we're still going. there's so much to do um, and sometimes we come across people in the ecosystem and they're like, "Oh, I thought of that idea, and then it was too hard, and so I stopped and it, is, it has been a hard and a long journey. Um, yeah, but <laughs> yeah
1: how do how you do your schedule every day? How do you figure out what to do day to day?
0: Yeah, so we have. So I mentioned that agile and sprint planning. Um, So every sprint, at the end of each sprint, we plan what we're going to do for the next sprint. So we have kind of our vision, which is transform startup success rates. And then underneath that, we have have, um, core goals based around our finances, our customer experience, and our employee experience. And then from those goals and metrics, then we look at the capacity we have on the team, and then we plan out what everybody is going to be working on for the next sprint. And obviously, you know, you can course correct if something urgent comes in. And then at the end of the sprint, we look at what everyone managed to achieve, and through that showcase, we see what was released, and then we replan for the next sprint. And sometimes in the middle of a sprint, we have to replan urgently, like if a if a tender comes in and we have to urgently put that together, then other things will have to get deprioritized. But we use agile to help us to, to do our sprint planning.
1: And you have someone on the team like like is it like almost like a tech advisor to the startups.
0: So we have, so we have our CTO Hayden, and so he any of the training or coaching or kind of tech related things, um, he runs those mentoring or um education sessions, and then our CEO Kirk is, um, he's a, our technical co-founder, so he does the same.
1: Okay, so change the subjects. Let's go back to snorkeling. Yes. When's the last time you've been snorkeling?
0: Ah, <sighs> too long ago. It was I think last summer. Um. I went to Australia partly for work, partly to visit family over there. And then on the way back, we, our flight went through Fiji. And so we went snorkeling, um, in, off of Fiji and it was fabulous. Um, apart from I got bit by a jellyfish. Um, and I had to hide it from my husband because he had told me not to go in the water because of the (laughs) jellyfish and I went in anyway. So I bravely, um, went out and carried on despite a quite painful jellyfish sting.
1: And how long have you been doing this? How long have you been snorkeling?
0: Oh God, as long as I can remember, I was maybe, I think, fifteen, sixteen when okay. I first snorkeled. I mean, maybe I was an adult. I mean, there's not there's not a ton of places to snorkel off of the coast of England unless you're prepared to dive down to like the depths.
1: I thought you were about to say unless you prefer to die for snorkeling.
0: <laughs> I mean, England is a very safe there's not much that's gonna kill you in England. Mm-hmm. It's not like, you know, I remember when I I first went for a hike over here and I went to Snow Lake mm-hmm. and um that I thought in England there's always a cut through. And so I thought I'd found a great cut through um and then i got lost and ended up like kind of getting extremely dehydrated oh. and lost in the wilderness and um and i remember thinking to myself oh my god i'm going to be one of those idiots that are in the It'll paper be, be on the news yeah like stupid Being english extract, tourist in,
1: tries
0: to make cut through ends up getting eaten by bear yeah <laughs> but yeah
1: <laughs> so have you ever done a scuba diving
0: i have um, I went to the Great Barrier Reef about 20 years ago and I scuba dived there, but I struggle with my ears. Like, you know, sometimes people's ears just pop Yeah. and I found it tricky. How about you? Have you ever done?
1: No, done I haven't. It? No. no. Is there anything like something you want to do, like skydiving or running a marathon that's on your bucket list?
0: Ooh, um, just see the Northern Lights. Northern that's Lights. my, that's my current, that's my bucket list item and I'm determined to do it. Um, I hope this year I've been searching them for ages and one of my friends, Helen, she's convinced that she saw the Northern Lights from a cash point in like, I think Manchester in the UK in the middle of the night. I'm like, there is no way you saw the Northern Lights. There's just no way. But it's, that's my current dream is to see the Northern Lights.
1: Um, and are you going to record and all that kind of stuff? Um,
0: but that's the one thing I need to work out is I've only got an iPhone, not a proper camera. Okay. So I need to work out what settings I need to do to see them properly.
1: Yeah.
0: Probably going to catch me out.
1: And I guess you're, you're flying with there, right?
0: Yeah. I'm hoping to see them on the flight on the way over. Well, um, nice. Otherwise, I'm going to be not sleeping just, to, just in the hopes that they might just come out. you
1: be up there 24-7, just yeah. like drinking yeah. coffee. What do you got to do to stay awake?
0: Yes. But there's, some, I mean, there's so many apps out there now and like Facebook groups that tell you when they're out. So I'm yeah. hopeful that that's going to help me. I mean i feel like technology is the solution here um i went to finland for a week about 10 years ago and i think the northern lights came out four times when i was there Mm -hmm. but each time it was like 4 a.m like 1 a.m and i had no idea so what am i doing sleeping yeah i mean it was it was so cold that my the hairs in my nose froze so i wasn't just going to stay out all the
1: time yeah so are you interested like, like that like space stuff and stuff like that or
0: yeah um yeah, in fact, if there was one specialism that we have at really cheap, it's space startups, um, just because we've run four accelerator programs for space mm-hmm. startups. Um, and I love seeing what is happening in the space sector. Yeah. Um, and I think the most exciting thing for me is actually technologies that are built to work in space and actually seeing them be implemented yeah. on the ground. Yeah, um, it's fabulous. You know, like things like, you know, being able to, spot and detect wildfires instantly and put them out before they become yeah. an issue or you know spotting like kind of like pirate ships that are mm. you know a, a danger there's so much that space technology can do on land it's fascinating one of my the most exciting companies that we've had subscribed with us recently is um a company called paladin space and he they've designed a solution that um basically eats and recycles space debris um, and no one else out there is doing it. Like the only companies that are doing it are focused on big debris, but actually most of the debris is very small. Um, and you just think that's actually a massive problem, like space junk. Um, and I'm, only, like, I'm pretty excited to see what he goes.
1: satellites in space now just cluttering up space? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't really imagine what it looks... I mean, I've seen the pictures that he has of space, but you just think, God, it's... it's I mean, again, it's like the Wild West. Like, no one's been regulating it, but regulation... Is and will come. And then, of course, there's going to be all these solutions that are needed. Um, and if you look at SpaceX, like, I love what SpaceX has done for the space industry. Because, you know, who knew that you could make reusable space rockets?
1: Yeah, I remember the first time they, they reland, like, oh, shit, like, this is, like, this is dope right here. This is, like, pretty badass right here. Yeah. This is, like, some Star Trek, Star Wars, yeah. space fantasy stuff right here. Yeah,
0: and at a tenth of the cost. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'm continually fascinated by SpaceX um and the advancements that they have made and similarly like tesla with kind of driving and forcing the car industry mm-hmm. to move to electric vehicles it wasn't going electric it wasn't going to do it without tesla no yeah and um i love that i love that about startups it's like that power to disrupt and then prompt big improvements and changes
1: and like i think james whip's telescopes discovered like a thousand galaxies a day with a thousand planets in there like yeah. And I and I think they discovered like the universe has like a background hum or something, like a background music, whatever like
0: Yeah, it's I, do, I mean, I'm continuously curious and fascinated by all the new potential ideas. And I think, you know, as AI starts to potentially depla displace people from mm. jobs, there's only gonna be more startups and more ideas that people actually then get around to pursuing. And mm. I can't wait to see what comes. Um, I think, you know, the last decade has very much been full of, like, consumer apps. Mm. Um, And, I mean, there's been some great developments Mm. in other industries, but I wonder if the next decade is going to be more full of, like, really big problems being solved, like, you know, carbon. Yeah.
1: Do we really need another last mile app? Do we need another, like, delivery app? Like, is tech really solving your problems?
0: Yeah. But I think harnessing the power of tech to solve those big problems, like, you know, I think VC money is starting to move in that direction. Um, and of course, you know, if you look at like solar, winds, like that's now economically cheaper mm. than um, oil and gas and, and coal. And you just think, well, where, where things make money, that's where the money follows. It's just making sure that the big problems get the funding in order to kind of kickstart them in the way that solar and wind power was, were kickstarted kind of decades ago.
1: So you go to Mars?
0: Never say never. <laughs> um, I definitely would rather go into space than go under the water. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, I'd be interested to see what happens because I, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. I thought flying cars were going to be here by now.
1: Yeah, I know, right? <laughs>
0: yeah, I'm like, where are my flying cars? And I mean, I think they're due for, I, I read something uh, a few months ago that I think was saying that LA is going to get flying cars next year. Mm-hmm.
1: Like, hmm. I mean, it was frustrating. Like, I think GFK are so going to be in the moon 1960. We got there like nine years later. Mm. And you think, well, what, what have we really done since 1969? Right? I mean, the space shuttle. I mean, the space shuttle is actually a step backwards, right? Because you go to the moon is like you got to do the moon. Mm-hmm. Space shuttle is a different type of rocket, right? And just flying around the planet, right? But it's like, what have you done these last 50 years? You, you would think it would have been like, I don't say colonies Mars or we should have done something. I think you know.
0: Well, yeah, but then I think after you know the the space race was just driven really by the Cold War yeah. and America mm. and. Um, russia trying to compete with each other but then it it fascinates me because you have all these men like you know jeff bezos Mm. elon musk uh, Richard branson who Mm. were children and watched the space race Mm. and then they come in make their money elsewhere and then they're the ones that are driving space innovation and um yeah i mean because i don't think the government could have continued to fund Mm -hmm. space exploration in a way that private companies can now
1: yeah, I just remember this. I don't know if it's true. Not remember, I remember watching a news show where like, I think it was the Apollo 11 or Apollo 13 that like were accident in space. And they you know, they didn't die, they could have died. And then after that, President Nixon like shut it down because you don't want to risk any more Americans in space that kind of shut yeah. it down a little bit, you know. I don't know how true that is.
0: Well, do you know what? And I do think technology is held to a very, very high standard because like if one person dies in a self-driving car accident, then like, you know, it's like, wow, like stop self-driving cars. But you think even, how many? Even
1: if that is that person is fault, you yeah. Know?
0: And even if, and you think how many thousands and thousands of people are killed in traffic accidents all, all year time. round by people driving? Mm-hmm. Um, like tech is held to a high standard, yeah. and I I think rightly so. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's but it's it's fascinating, and you know I think that's right. Like you know, an American dies. Like yeah. something must be done.
1: Remember this? I I can't remember what happened. There was like a they had a video of this guy. He was in a Tesla driving, but he's like passed out sleep. Yeah. And, like, cars just going everywhere, like.
0: Yeah. Well, one thing that does, I'm not unsure about if this will happen, but, like, you know, you have, like, the the case from this week about the Vegas hotels getting hacked. Mm-hmm. Like, surely, I, the one thing that does concern me a little about technology is you always need to have a manual override. Because yeah. there is always a potential for a bad actor to
1: Or like hack. The, you watched <laughs> that one movie, um. Uh, what's it called? Fast and Furious, mm. where they'd hack all the vehicles and like all the cars driving everywhere. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. That that is one thing that if I think of, I have a recurring fear it is that. Um, which is a bit of a strange fear to have, but self-driving cars just going crazy and taking over and crashing into everything.
1: I know. Can you imagine getting your Tesla and the, the Tesla says, "Get out! I'm not driving you today."
0: No, or the te- or you get in and the Tesla drives you into a wall. Like, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's an it's an interesting one, but. I don't know. I think there's always going to be that, the tension because as people get into power, you know, they tend to want to keep hold of power yeah. and stay in power. And then of course you've got tech. And then um, I hadn't realized until I think the last couple of weeks that Elon Musk actually stopped a, a Ukraine offensive mm. by turning off Starlink. Yeah. Um. And you just think there's a lot of power that sits with yeah. A couple, like a very small number of individuals, mm-hmm. whether that's politicians yeah. or tech owners, um, and it'll be interesting to see what what happens with that in the future.
1: Yeah, yeah, I heard about that. Then again, like he he did a lot of stuff for them too in the beginning yeah. of the war, you know. So like,
0: yeah, yeah. Oh no, I know. And to be honest, I I don't know enough about the situation to make any sort of negative comment. Um, you know, because I think with Starlink, he's given Ukraine like amazing internet access.
1: Yeah. Um.
0: Yeah. It's just. It's just fascinating to me that, like, a. They decided a, to
1: turn off at this exact moment when wow, they needed
0: yeah. it. Yeah. I think it was, uh, from, again, the article I read was saying that he was worried about what that would do with kind of escalating the mm-hmm. war. Um, yeah. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a so, complex so basically situation. So a
1: private business, man, making like political, geopolitical yeah. decisions.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So what do we live in today?
0: It's, yeah, it's a crazy world.
1: Yeah. So, um, back to space. Yes. So with all these millions of planets out there, we're, we're gonna go deep dive now. Do you think there's a life out there?
0: I do. And um, when I
1: say life, do you mean like, like a, like a little micro bacteria or do you mean like exfoliations on life?
0: Definitely bacteria and other okay. things like that. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, part of me enjoys the fact that I don't know.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, it's, to me, it's just a fascinating topic. And I love the fact that humans don't really know. Like I mean, I think there is evidence of life in other planets because, mm. like you know, there's been kind of releases of information and yeah. podcasts and things about about it. But I it's, love, it's, I love not yeah. knowing.
1: And supposedly, there's like proof of water millions of years ago on Mars. You know, because the way the planet is, something like that. You know, but I mean, like, like who knows, right? Like, yeah. Do you really know? No, you don't.
0: No, and I do question whether anyone's actually going to be able to live on Mars. Like mm. to me, that I don't actually think I believe that. But I'm also happy to be proved wrong.
1: Yeah.
0: One of the things that I've learn over and over as I've got older is that like have a strong opinion but have it loosely held yeah because yeah. you never know when you're going to be wrong or when someone's got a better opinion or a stronger opinion than you and you go oh okay that's that's an interesting perspective I hadn't thought of and I feel that way about uh outer space
1: I know a lot of people will say you know aliens out there I want them to come visit me I'm like I don't know I don't know how aliens can <laughs> come visit us right like I don't know about that one right like no. if they're alive keep staying inside the universe right like they're probably more taking a lot of vests us they don't know what their intentions are like
0: yeah I I don't know Um, I sometimes I like having something that's unknown
1: because
0: mm-hmm. um, I think you know if aliens were to come to the planet I mean really who knows like who knows what would happen it would just be complete Yeah, I think it would be complete chaos Um, and I'm yeah I'm there were some things I'm quite happy not knowing about and some things I'm curious about and yeah. I'd put kind Of interplanetary life in the things I'm mm. okay not knowing about just yet,
1: yeah. Like the end is a coming like tomorrow and then wipe us out. I don't, really don't want to know, right? <laughs> like,
0: uh, would you want to know? I don't think I would. No, I think I'd rather it just happen.
1: Like, if they're gonna come and wipe us out in a second. There's nothing we can do about it, like, yeah. Why well, know, right? Now if we have a fighting chance, yeah, that's a different story, yeah. If they're gonna come like, okay, that's like wipe us off like ants.
0: I know, and I don't have any combat experience. Like I, <laughs> I think I'd be quite useless in a situation fighting with an alien. Yeah. I, know you don't. I mean, you might be better equipped. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, basically, we're just talk about stuff like this, like like generalized. If, I won't say use the word fantasize, you know. But and it's crazy, like some people, like actually, like all those conspiracy theories, like yeah. they hundred percent believe the aliens are coming, the aliens are here. Like the no, people I don't believe like aliens are here right now, right? Running the government, you know, all kind of craziness. Uh,
0: yeah, it's. I mean fake news that kind of drives those kind of conspiracy theories I think it's only getting more dangerous and more hard to spot it is Um, I like to think that I keep an open mind having said that I'm extremely gullible on Mm. certain topics (laughs) um, but I've never been one to go down a conspiracy theory route (laughs) yeah
1: and then like like you have like the flat earthers out there it's like I know it's like to me okay you say the earth's flat look at all the planets they're round yeah wouldn't it be the same as them
0: I mean, I don't really understand how anyone can think that the earth is flat. The only way that I think you would think that is if you hadn't ever been anywhere, you hadn't had education, you couldn't get access to images. Mm -hmm. Like, I just think there's so much evidence that it's round. Yeah. um, That if you haven't seen that evidence or you don't believe it, I don't know. Yeah. It seems irrational to me, but then I like to put myself in another person's shoes and understand why they think that way.
1: Yeah, I guess maybe if you like grew up in Kansas all your life where everything's flat but even then it's curvature. <laughs> you tell you know do
0: you know what Kansas is on my places of list of places that I would like to see in the US is it I don't know why but I would like to go so and just Kansas explore. City is a really nice
1: place is it it's really a really good city yeah Kansas okay. City is nice yeah
0: I think that's that's one of our places like cities we'd like to visit next year
1: that's, good, that's a good place
0: any places that you'd add
1: oh man um, San Antonio yep Austin those are good places uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Where? Charleston, South oh, Carolina. Yeah, yeah.
0: I really want to go to Charleston. It's a really good place. Yeah. And
1: a Savannah, Georgia.
0: Yes, I've also not been there. Those places, yeah. 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 All good places. How about you? Where's next on your list that you'd like to go?
1: Oh, man. Um, I'm not sure, to be honest with you. Something random. Maybe Wyoming or like oh, North yeah. Dakota, like something totally random, you know. Oh, I'll go to like maybe Maine or Vermont during the fall. See all the leaves, cheese colors.
0: Yeah, that would be a good trip. Yeah, yeah, I would also like to do that, I think. Yeah, I also would like to go and see the larches. because I think in eastern Washington, you mm. can see larches are coming up soon. Mm. Um, I would like to see them. That'd be pretty cool. Well, also,
1: I want, I want to live in like, New York City for like six months.
0: That would be amazing.
1: Because yeah. my wife would probably have something to say about that, But Yeah, do
0: you know what? I do, in some ways, I wish that the digital nomad lifestyle had been possible mm. when I was unencumbered by children. But I think I would have really enjoyed it. Um, But at the time, there was no way I was working anywhere but an office.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Different times, yeah. Different different times, times. yeah. Um, so back to Leap Sheep, yes. So you already talked about a sum, but can you go more detail how it got started, what you focus on, or what the vision is for it?
0: Yeah, sure. So back in, I think it would have been twenty fifteen. Um, so I actually the reason I started working at Leap Sheep is, um, I was just about to move to America, so I was kind of packing, and then Catherine, who's our CEO, her and I had known each other personally for a number of years, and she came from Australia and she was in France. In Paris for a conference, and she said, "Why don't you just come over and chat to me?" I was like, "Okay, let's." You know, I'm happy to come over visit, and I did. And it was just as her and Kirk were starting up Leap Sheep, um, and at the time they were they were doing consulting to startups in Southeast Asia, and so they were flying from Australia to Southeast Asia to basically help startup founders to build their businesses. And then, then I think they both thought, "Hang on a minute, like this seems to be a problem that there is in Adelaide as well. Like, why don't we see if we can build a product?" To make it easy for any founder anywhere to build a, a successful startup. And I'd never heard of startups. I spent, I went to Paris with Catherine and we spent the entire weekend talking about startups. And I was just about to leave my job in at the CQC in the UK. And we spent the whole time talking about Leap Sheep. And so then I moved to America. I had my second daughter and Catherine and I kept in touch. And I said, look, you know, I'd, the American, how the situation is for working women in the U S is very unlike England. Like in England, you can work part-time, you can have children and it's easy. Like everyone I know in England works, they're working parents. Whereas in the US, you're either working five days a week or you're not working. It's a very, it was very strange to me. Um, And so I was like, well, how do I avoid that? I know I'll work for an Australian company. And of course I had Leap Sheep in my mind because I really, really was compelled by the problem that they were solving, even though I had no startup experience. And then I started working for them. I initially did work in, Doing research, and um, I did history as a at, uh, uh, as my undergraduate degree, and so then I started working for Leap in that way, and then gradually, as I proved kind of what I could do and my skills, then I started to um, build and to research a lot of the content and kind of put it together and work with the rest of the team to put these models together, and then over time, I gradually built up more experience, worked with more startups in more in smaller ways, like just about research. And then, of course, I kind of built out my expertise and training. And now that's how I do so much, so many things now. And it's because I've worked with really hundreds of founders and their teams. Um, and that's kind of where, yeah, that's where I am now. And I couldn't really imagine working at anywhere else, to be honest.
1: So what's the future vision for League Feet? What's the plan to be yeah. in
0: the future? Yeah. Yeah, so so at the moment we're in our human centric delivery stage, um, but we very much see ourselves as a product company. It's just that we have been designing and testing and validating our model as a um, by doing manual delivery with humans delivering the product. Um, and at the moment we're codifying and building what we have into software. Um, and then our the next stage will be is actually capturing. And again, we already capture founder data. Um, So, things like, you know, when, um, how many times has a founder pivoted? Like, who's on their team? Are they doing stand ups? Like, all of that data we capture. And it's very founder centric data that helps founders to kind of progress their business. Like, you know, how many times have they updated their goals and metrics and things like that? Um, And so, all of that data, and we'll be able to collect a lot more of that in a more efficient way with our software as we're building it. And then, um, and that will be building the data sets on which we'll train AI so that we can have. Um, an AI, very much AI centric um, uh, system, so that really any, and of course, the more founders we work with, the smarter we get, the better evidence that we have about the advice and the guidance that we're giving. And so that's our flywheel. Like the more founders become successful, they'll tell more people about Leap Sheep, then people will actively seek out Leap Sheep like they do Y Combinator right now. Um, and of course, then the smarter we get, the smarter our system gets, um, with the intention being that kind of in Probably five, to six years from now, we will have, you know, I think there'll still be some element of human delivery um, or parts of our offering. But actually, if you're a founder and you're in the middle of Uzbekistan or Nigeria, like and you have an idea, then actually you'll be able to log on to our startup builder platform and do all of that work and test out your idea and get kind of validation and feedback and get introductions to, you know, your potential customers um, because we'll have been able to build all of that whole product out. And so it's really designed just to help founders be more successful at solving like big uh, world problems.
1: So who else is doing this? Who's your competitors?
0: Yeah. So, so there are, I mean, it's a, it's a crowded market in many ways. You know, there's, you've got accelerator programs, incubators, universities, like professional services firms, there's a lot of people running pro, particularly programs and of course the very best of these like you know y combinator and particularly y combinator kind of 10 years ago as well when there was like you know small cohorts and you had then like the small network like if you get into y combinator or if you get to have steve blank you know at stanford university then your chances you know these are true experts working there um and so your chances of being successful are way higher but there's also a lot of noise and what we would call innovation theater in that, you know, there's a lot of events and programs and things that are actually not actually moving the needle on startup success rates. Um, similarly, there's also matching platforms. So, you know, you've got Gust um, and and multiple other platforms and play, like, companies like Signal and FX, like, you know, that are supposed to match investors with founders. But the problem with those is that, you know, it's a bit like a dating app. Like you can match with somebody, but actually there's a whole due diligence step that isn't catered for by those kind of solutions. Um, and then I'm starting to learn more and more about kind of new products that are designed to screen founders and like screen founders more from the investor side. These are are just starting to come onto the market now. Um, and none of, and again, I'm happy to be corrected or challenged on this, but many of these kind of solutions, they aren't founder centric. Like we're all about trying to build many, many, many more successful founders. Um, and again, there's the grit and resilience like personality type of a founder um which is an element but a lot of what we believe is that actually if you give people the right education and guidance and coaching and help them to learn kind of the unknown unknowns in the right way then you can help many 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 more founders be successful and that's you know we're we've all been working really damn hard for a number of years because we believe so strongly in this
1: so, what's been some indicators to y'all that y'all are on the right path? Like this is the right thing to do.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, our lifetime value metric is probably our biggest indicator, and our low churn rate. Because if founders don't subscribe, they just if if founders don't get value, they just stop subscribing. Um, that's, that's probably our most, our best objective metric. So
1: what's it called churn rate? You have a pretty low turn rate. Yeah,
0: our churn rate is pretty low. Um, and again, right now are the, the way that we manually deliver our service, um, you know, it's not all singing all dancing, um, like it does the job, but we've got founders that are pulling this software from us so that they can get the value outside of contact time with us. And so we've got a pretty clear validation. That we should be building, what the software that we are building, um, and it's kind of reached the stage now where you know, yes, we can continue as in, in the way that we're doing it, but there's enough data and evidence. And often when we meet, and when I meet a founder, and they've perhaps they've made a ton of mistakes, and often they'll say, "Oh, I wish I'd known about leap Sheep earlier," um, and that's hard to hear, but it also gives a lot of validation that we're on we're onto something.
1: So when you do the AI model and get away with the human touch, isn't it going to like kind of like lose some of the, the customer service you'll provide? Isn't that going to like lose some of what the leaf sheep is?
0: Well, I, I mean, I think we'll always have an element which has a human, like a trained mm-hmm. startup expert. But like similarly, if you could, so say Steve Blank, for example, like one of the most recognized startup experts, like if you could have access to Steve Blank as say, like an AI advisor that was Steve Blank, mm-hmm. I think many founders would want that. Um, and then, of course, you know, the people that we have in the company will be able to get them kind of working on developing and improving the product. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I still see that there'll be human advisors for a long time to come. Okay. Um, just because, you know, the the level of maturity that you would need for an AI mm-hmm. to be able to do what we do manually at the moment. Like, I think it's years away. Again, I'm happy to be proved wrong. But the so- data doesn't exist
1: so how do we fix this potential problem right we talked about ai before like for example like they're talking about you know, in the future like all the truck drivers going away be ai trucks drivers like I, i'm making this number like if that happens two hundred fifty thousand people people of be out of a job like, instantly mm-hmm. right and of course that would probably crash the economy right maybe like what do you do these people right do you like do you like you unif- what's it called a uh, something basic income yeah you know, universal base basic income. income like do we do that like what do you think about all that
0: It's, do you know what? I am, I would not consider myself an expert on this particular topic, but all I can give you is my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, if you think about kind of the transition from like coal, Mm -hmm. particularly like coal mines and, you know, there's, there's jobs in clean tech, Mm -hmm. like, you know, they're different jobs, but actually, you know, this whole concept of a job for life. Um, people I think are going to have to get used to the fact that they're going to continually have to change and evolve and adapt to new ways of working. So yes, you know, potentially there may be a number of jobs that go away either completely or reduce, but there will always be new, new types of work coming up. I know I didn't, I'd never heard of a social media manager when I was at school because they didn't exist. Um, And I do think that those kind new jobs will always come up. And if you, if you are willing to retrain and relearn and they're
1: better jobs.
0: Yeah. Mm, I mean, to be honest, the gig economy model yeah. like with, there are, you know, so I wouldn't necessarily say that like an Uber driver or a, like, you know, it's kind of gig economy jobs that like there's a lot of issues with mm-hmm. them. Um, but I mean, I'm, I'm naturally an optimist. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I worry a lot about disruption mm-hmm. to people in the workforce um, but I worry for the people that are reluctant to change or unable to change. Um, I think if you're willing, if you're willing to retrain and relearn, then the world could be your oyster. Having said that, the the pain of losing a job is yeah. a, is a big said, pain. A lot of people
1: that say, I'm a truck driver, I'm, I'm this, I'm that, right? And it'll yeah. be taken it's away. It's their identity. Yeah. Yeah. I think a perfect example, like way back in the day, when uh, everyone used to have ride horses and the cars came, people were like, Yeah. oh my goodness, you know, all these people who are like, I, I, there was a job where people like, would be out like, dig and the, take the shit yeah. off the street. Yeah. They're going to lose their job. Of course yeah. they did, right? But it, like something else came along.
0: Yeah. And I mean, there's going to be a big element, which is, I and mean, there's two kind of elements to it. It's one, which is training people how to use AI effectively to make them more effective in their jobs. Um, and then there's the element of, you know, for the people who do are in a position where they lose their job, like, you know, the, the horse poo movers, mm-hmm. Um then what? Okay, like what
1: that's, a yeah. good, that's a good job title. <laughs> I was about uh, to say shit shovel is, but I'm like horse poo mover.
0: Horse poo mover, yeah. I mean there's there is an element of like how do you actively help people mm. not to be fearful of the future? Yeah. And yeah. I d- I don't think there's an answer. I mean, honestly if
1: if your job was like being a horse poo mover like you know how how you know, high school <laughs> warrior right like you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I d- I mean I mean, that's the fascinating thing, I think, to me. And again, there's a whole bigger conversation about immigration Mm. and society. Because, like, you know, England with Brexit and the US with its more restrictive immigration policies, there's a ton of jobs that people do not want. Like, you know, people don't want to have a job in a care home where they're potentially, like, you know, working with people, like, constantly going to the toilet. Like, people don't want those jobs. And there is an element of how can we harness technology to do the jobs that humans don't want to do
1: yeah i remember seeing a video a while ago maybe a week ago where like this robot was cleaning the bathrooms right i'm mean, like that's that's the whole industry out mm. you know out the window right clean industry yeah of course i don't i don't think they have paid well you know for what they do but i mean like gone. i can't
0: i don't know i wonder how i don't i'm not certain the cleaning industry is close to being disrupted mm um i can't quite imagine a robot cleaning a toilet or a sink but i mean this
1: one did It cleaned it really
0: oh man i'm gonna search for
1: that yeah search it it's clean clean the whole bathroom toilet bathtub sink what yeah like all the hoses and gloves and all that kind of stuff yeah
0: oh man wow yeah
1: so do you think this industry that ai is not going to disrupt no
0: no not in some way or other Mm. um I can't think of an industry that won't have some sort of, and again, some industries are going to be really disrupted and others are going to be improved or transformed. Um, I can't think of one that will be untouched. Can you?
1: No, I don't.
0: No, I really don't.
1: Because they're they're painting pictures, they're doing music. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you think about plane flight is already like, like like, you know, most positive on planes and then more just press a couple mm-hmm. of buttons, you know, just mm-hmm. stuff for emergencies.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Which is why I'm unsure about our hypothesis about humans as um, startup experts mm-hmm. because a human, you know, same with a doctor, like a doctor and a human are only as good as their knowledge and their yeah. ability to operate a system. Um, yeah. I know the thing that I'm unsure about is the extent of to which you'll be able to build empathy, like human em- level empathy into... AI but then I mean you can't build it in many humans so
1: no I think the challenge (laughs) is like who's coding AI is is a good person good or a bad person you know Mm -hmm. like who's actually doing the code for this like are they putting empathy in there like diversity stuff all those soft skills or is this like the robot says you know do this now do this now you know
0: yeah and that is and I think also the ability to trace how an AI has built something or Mm -hmm. developed something it's like how and who's going to be accountable
1: yeah, like I don't know, do we want AI deciding when to launch nuclear weapons, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Or well, like yeah.
1: Deciding what weapons systems to do or whatever the case may be, you know, or
0: Yeah. I know. I mean it'd be it'd be interesting to see what would happen in the US if the if the average age of politicians went down. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, there's so there's a and um, do you know what I'm about to go into a topic that I really shouldn't probably talk about, but you know, there's a lot of people who are kind of of an age mm. who are in Congress who actually they, they probably don't really use technology and they're not no. necessarily aware of, some of like, the risks it, and benefits. Like,
1: it was so embarrassing. Like when uh, Mark Zuckerberg testified in front mm. of Congress, how do you make money? Ads. Yeah, Congress kind of, like, you don't know that? Yeah. And like, it, and then like had the TikTok CEO up there, like the question they were asked, like, are you kidding me right now? Like, mm. did your like intern brief you on, on what TikTok is? Like, what are you doing? Right?
0: Yeah, I know. It's, um, yeah, it is a worry and there's no incentive for the people in power to change. No. But I mean, you look at any other political system in in the world and people are a lot younger.
1: I mean, I have to imagine <laughs> a world of, like looking at like, you can have like Trump and Biden running for prison again, like fucking like 10,000 year old people and stuff. It's like insane.
0: It, it is insane. And I do think that the party leadership on both parties, like what are they doing to build their pipeline? There's, like, no,
1: there's no pipeline.
0: No, I just, it, it seems crazy to me. Like, you know, every company has like a leadership development yeah, program. Yeah. Where is the leadership development program in politics in the political
1: system? On the Democrat side, they're, they're not even doing no debates for Democrats. Mm. They've canceled that because of course they're afraid like Biden's going to like say something dumb or stupid or do something, you know, there's no debates. And the other <laughs> side, you know, like Trump, DeSantis, who knows, right? It's like.
0: I know. I mean, that's a problem I'd like to see a solution for. It's like, how do we, how do we bring back? Like really great people in politics.
1: Yeah. I agree with you.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Don't know the answer to that.
1: No. So um is there any like English food you miss?
0: Curry. English I know it's Indian, but curry. There's okay. nothing like an English curry.
1: Okay.
0: Um fish and chips.
1: Mm.
0: Proper fish and chips with vinegar.
1: Um what kind of fish is it? Does it matter?
0: Not really. It's typically okay. cod.
1: Cod, okay.
0: Yeah. Um, roast dinner. That's another classic, like yeah. roast potatoes, meat, okay. ideally lamb. We don't get much lamb in the US. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I love a lot of the food you can get in the US and you can get much better Mexican in the US. Mm. Um, I don't, I, ribs, like mm. meat and fish over here is yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, so what's um, been your yeah.
1: favourite American meal over here?
0: I think it's, it's got to be the rib. oh, ribs. Ribs or the scallops? Okay. How do you say it? Scallops. Scallops. So you scallops. like scallops? Yeah. Okay. So in England, the fish and everything is small. Like okay. the scallops are tiny, yeah. and here they are big. Yeah. Yeah. It's um. Yeah. It's good. That everything be
1: is. a when you came with to like, see how big our meals are, which is insane. Like.
0: Yeah. You like- know what? The first time we ate here, having we we went to Colorado um, on our way to Seattle, mm-hmm. and we ordered a starter and then a main course, mm-hmm. and we never did that again. <laughs> like.
1: I we've mean starters a main course. Yes. A main course are like it's like if you could eat your whole main course you're you're just greedy. I mean like
0: I know. The irony though is like the more expensive the meal the less mm-hmm. you get. Yeah. Um yeah, no we we don't typically order it's just a main meal now. No dessert, no starter.
1: <laughs> when you're going back to England for a visit?
0: Um back for Christmas.
1: Okay.
0: Yeah, I'm yeah, I'm looking forward to it. i I mean Christmas here is great. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, um I'm very close to my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got some really good friends in England. So I'm looking forward to going back there um, nice. for that. Yeah, it'd be good. And um, yeah, but although it's a strange time zone, I'll be working like all hours, like yeah. meetings till like really early in the morning and up again early in the morning. The Engla- England to Australia time zone does not work well. No. No. Oh, well, it's, I mean, it doesn't matter. It's it's a joy to be able to travel and work for mainly. You, you got to do. I'm very lucky. Mm.
1: So is there anything else I asked you that I didn't or anything else you want to talk about?
0: Do you know what? We've covered so many great topics. Um, I don't think there's anything else I that you should ask me about. Is there anything I haven't asked you? No, no. <laughs> um, no, you've asked some fabulous questions. Yeah. I really enjoyed chatting.
1: Uh, can you share your social media with us so people can reach out to you?
0: Oh, yes, I can. Um, so on LinkedIn, um, if you type Sarah Bell at Leap Sheep, that's the platform I'm most active on. I've just just started on TikTok today. Um, but LeapSheep is uh LinkedIn is the kind of the best option. And then our website is LeapSheep.com. Um, oh, one last thing is if you are a founder and um, anything that we have said has resonated with you, we do run complimentary strategy sessions. Um, and so we're always happy to chat to a founder that might be in need of help. So um, yeah, that's it's on the the very bottom of the about me on LinkedIn is the link to that.
1: So what's your TikTok handle?
0: It's Sarah Bell Leap Sheep.
1: And what was your tech, what, was, what was the first video you did? You did
0: uh, the first video I did was um, all about the challenges for the problems for founders in okay. being able to be really honest about just how hard it is to start a startup. Like if you go to events, you're putting your best self forward. If you're talking to an investor, you're putting your best self forward. Like there's really no opportunity to to have those conversations about you know like is this it? Like, what do I do? I'm stuck help. Um, that was my first TikTok video. And it's one of the reasons why I value what we do at Leap Sheep so much is that we can actually be that trusted person for people to really confide in and get proper help. Um, having said that my TikTok, my TikTok video, I thought it was, it was a, I hope decent enough, but I, I, proofread all the captions so that they all made sense i took out all the ums mm. and then the one word i missed was leap sheep so <laughs> if you look at it it says leaf shape um and of course i can't take it down unless i yeah i mean the world of tiktok i've come to you a little late um, mm. but i'm really enjoying it i love the, the short form video like it's kind of the best opportunity to be exactly who you are yeah um yeah and i'm a bit late really to tiktok it's never yeah. too late. No, because I understand you're on TikTok, aren't you? Yeah. What's your main platform?
1: Uh LinkedIn, Twitter, and um TikTok. Yeah. Yeah. I to be a big fan of Snapchat, but it's just so complicated now. It's more like VR AR stuff on there now. I used to really like Snapchat.
0: Right. Like yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you know what LinkedIn surprises me? Cause um like um, I've never wanted to like LinkedIn, mm-hmm. but there's so much great content on there and so many great connections to make. Yeah, um, I really, um, it's, like, it's, it's one of my it's, favorites. It's the
1: best thing out there. It's the worst thing too at the yeah. same time, right? Because yeah. some of the stuff you're like, what?
0: Yeah, I mean, of course, some of it.
1: Like some of the stuff you like post, people want to post, but like sometimes I just don't understand, right? Like mm-hmm. people like, like vacations I get sometimes, but people like putting, you know, like my so-and-so died last night. And like, do so you have better things to do than post about someone dying? Right, you know, just. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know.
0: It's that's a hard one. I feel like, and again, it's there's very much a, a sharing economy mm-hmm. going on. But I feel like that kind of thing is, I, I, that's what I use WhatsApp for. It's like mm-hmm. I'll message just like one person.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. Or a phone call, right?
1: So um, you on WhatsApp?
0: Yeah, I like lo- the reason I'm on WhatsApp. I was quite an early adopter of WhatsApp, mm-hmm. is because like especially being living away. It's quite a great way to have, like I've got my school friends group, Mm. my friends from university, my family, and it's a good way to share photos of like my children Mm. or what we've been up to. We'll check in with people in a way that's not public.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's me, but whenever someone reaches out to me on LinkedIn, I always know it's a scam when they say go to WhatsApp.
0: Yes, 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 always. Oh yeah, I don't ever message people on WhatsApp that I really know well. Yeah. It's much more of a personal
1: yeah.
0: um I never use it for work.
1: That's something Nick needs to fix all the scam profiles on there. Like yeah. all the time, at least once a day, it'd be like some attractive Asian female, um, with a high school diploma, mm-hmm. or she a VP of finance for a being a dollar company, you know.
0: Do you know Airbnb have done a good job, I think, with their and again it's it's there's a lot to do when you first set yourself up with Airbnb. Mm-hmm. But you know, the fact that you've got to put your passport information mm-hmm. in. And, yeah. you know, there's various steps, but I think they're probably the best tech platform that's actually been able to yeah, right. stop yeah. scammers. Um, I mean, it's a lot to do. And, mm. you know, if you're undocumented, what do you do then? How,
1: how much of that sucks? Like you do a trip, like we'll say, like, you know, Paris, France, get your BB, and you walk there like and there's no house at the address.
0: I, do you know what? I haven't. Have you been in that situation? No. No, I haven't. I don't think that you, I'm not certain if that you could manage that. Yeah. I've, I mean... I don't know. I have not kept on top of Airbnb scandals, but I think of all of the platforms, I mean, even I've I've never really had a big problem with Uber not that I use it very often. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it's a, it's a challenge. Like how do you prove that people are who they say they are? Yeah. Um. And yeah. I'm not sure how technology is going to help with that other than, well, I mean, probably blockchain technology, I think mm-hmm. it would help. Yeah. I'll be interested to see where blockchain goes in the future, to be honest.
1: Yeah. We need to talk about that.
0: No, that's okay.
1: Blockchain, Bitcoin.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's all, many topics to talk about. All the
1: thousands of cryptocurrency things out there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. We have a few blockchain startups and as our subscribers. And one of the challenges is building a business model that works with blockchain. Um, but there's some, in, I mean, there's some interesting stuff. I feel like it's kind of gone through its like valley of death and then it's coming back out. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, so is there a tech out there that kind of went away? Like for example, like I think a couple years ago, Web 3 was a big thing. Now know we talk talked about, you think Web 3 is coming back or what's the tech out there that like, kind of died that you think is going to come back?
0: Oh, um, I wonder, I mean, for me, I, and again, this hasn't died, but I am interested to see what happens with 3D printing because at mm-hmm. one point I think we all thought that there was going to be 3D printers in our houses.
1: Remember for a while people were like scared, oh, everyone's going to be 3D printing guns and 3D yeah. bullets, you know.
0: Yeah, and that hasn't really come to pass and I, I think how 3D printing will be used in the future will be um, like by like industries, like, you know, you'll build houses with 3D mm. printing or skyscrapers or like other things. And, um, or, you know, like, there might, I don't know how 3D printing would be used in like disaster recovery, for example. Um, that I think I'm really interested to see more about that. I mean, I mentioned generative AI that's obviously never died. Mm. I'm not, I don't know. What do you think? Technologies that have kind of died that might come back.
1: I'm not sure. I mean, I think 3D printing is a good answer. Yeah. I mean, Webber 3 was probably like a blast in a pan now, you know, people think yeah. about it, right? I mean, like, you really need a multiverse, you know, like. Yeah. And then, like, I don't know, I don't think, I really don't think the AR, VR headsets really went off like people thought they would, you know? No,
0: I'll, I'll be interested to see how that happens. I mean, my biggest fear is that phones become implanted in, like, your eyes, like <laughs> contact lenses. Yeah. Um. I mean, I'll, yeah, Um. That's, I think, a fear that I have for hmm. civilization. Because right now you can't put your phone down. No. Whereas if it's in your eye, like how do you know if the person you, you, that you're talking you, with is yeah, actually you, paying attention?
1: Yeah, you never close your eyes or whatever, you know, like...
0: Yeah, I also can't put contact lenses in. I faint um, if anything goes into my eye. So it's a like technology that would not work for me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so um, can you give us some advice on anything you want to talk about before we get out of here?
0: Um, I think my best advice to any... To a founder, do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my best advice to a founder is spend as much time as you can with your potential customers. Um, do not skip this step because you will have you'll find yourself having to go back to it. Like you know, before or after you've built software, you may as well do it before you've built software. Just find out about your customer and who they are, what's important to them, what their biggest challenges are. Like that's the most important thing, I think. Um, and also be creative. Look to the edges because most people were trying to find a problem that's straightforward and easy to solve. It's when you go to the edges that you find a solution that's really worth building.
1: Sarah, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. i really enjoyed chatting.
1: And to our listeners, thank you for your time as well. Remember to be great every day.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you and remember to be great every day.